Hello and welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where two academics listen to content from the greatest minds the online world has to offer and we try to understand what they're talking about. I'm Matt Brown and with me is Chris Kavanagh. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm all right. I noticed you didn't use your title this time, Matt. Uh, well, what's, what's going on? I like to mix it up a little bit, you know, keep people yeah. in suspense. You're feeling more communist today that, you know, what, what is this hierarchy of status? Professors, doctors, it's all meaningless anyway. <laughs> Equity, it's, Matt. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. I, uh, I don't like to think of myself as a professor. I think of myself. As Me a, neither. I don't I'm think not. of you as a professor. <laughs> <laughs> I just abide. I, I walk the earth and interact with uh, other beings. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I want to welcome you, Matt, to our last episode of the Coding the Gurus um, mm. before our cancellation. So, yeah, yeah. it's been a yeah. good run. It's been a good run, but uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, this is this is it for us. <laughs> yeah, this 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 is the racism episode. We're going. That's to... right. Yeah, it, it's it's been all building up to this. All of the rest was just a deep cover to get to our various issues with black academics and we've got a list of them oh we've got a lot to get off our chest a lot to get off our chest so we've already um i think got listeners out there who are eager to take us out that's right we show our true colors here um there's there's one there's one in particular a, a purported uh, philosopher of oh. color uh liam bright the infamous um, uh, yeah if, if very infamous and he's he's made threats to us online Yes. So Liam Bright, the, the arch villain that he is, he made a terrible error recently of blocking me. And now the reasons for that, we don't need to get into, but it, it, it may have something to do with my innate tendency to respond to comments with sarcasm. <laughs> um, but uh, the other thing was that he, he unblocked me just before this episode. And I suspect that that decision was not motivated by realizing the huge error that he's made, but simply because Mm. he wants to gather the evidence from this episode and then take me down directly face to face, you know, denounce me. I think this is a sheep in wolf's clothing maneuver. No, I'm sure that's not it. I'm sure, look, he he realized you'd learned your lesson that... Your message had been received, um, and uh, it was time to give you another chance. Which you know, that's not it, Matt. And no. as as I say, as another black academic, I feel we need to slam him, like just to you know, to keep, to keep up the motif of the episode. <laughs> just, pr- just any anyone. <laughs> just on general principles. Yeah. Although I I will say, and maybe this is another story that I shouldn't tell, but I'm going to put them all in this episode. There, were, there was a, a separate occasion where my tendency towards sarcasm, including in racially charged issues, caused some misunderstanding of sorts. So I think I've told you this before, but I haven't told it to thousands of people <laughs> in public. So when, when I was attending a Japanese class up in Hokkaido, I was walking to the class with an American girl uh, who was black and who was taking the class with me. And she was remarking to me about her experiences in Japan with kind of low levels of racism. And and in particular that at night, 
uh, Japanese people would sometimes cross the road <laughs> to avoid walking past her. And, you know, she was talking about it and saying, and, and was kind of saying mm. it's not necessarily, she doesn't feel, you know, that it's, it's like, it's more to do with them being intimidated or not sure how to deal with the situation was the feeling that she got. But she was saying, you know, to me, like, but I'm not intimidating. I mean, look at me. Um, mm. So at this point, we were kind of walking mm. quite close to the classroom. And my response to that, and I feel this is Northern Ireland's fault rather than my own personal feeling, <laughs> was when somebody, you know, mentions something <laughs> tragic and unfortunate that has happened to them. There's two options, and one of the options that my Northern Ireland background has given to me is to respond with dark sarcasm. <laughs> and, uh, and so when she said that, I deadpan responded that, well, yeah, I mean, I get that because black people are incredibly intimidating, and, and you in particular are you know, quite frightening as a black woman. <laughs> and, um, and I would have assumed that... That, that it was clear that that was a joke. And we, we were walking, she seemed kind of taken aback by that comment. And then we, we she was saying, no, but you know, it's not a, but I continued going down my sarcasm road. And then as we reached the entrance to the classroom, my brain kind of clicked, oh, look at her face. <laughs> she, she doesn't understand that this is you, you're not racist you're you're like making fun of racists and the problem was we only had a couple of seconds and i couldn't exactly you know say hey i'm not a racist <laughs> I'm, I'm just i'm poking fun of racists so i couldn't clarify so we kind of walked into the class and parted and i was like you know looking at myself like oh god <laughs> like I'm I, I can't correct this. I'm like, do I go up there after the class and be like, hey, when I was being racist earlier, <laughs> that was me poking fun at racist. It's, uh, oh, yeah. So, so, so this is not the, the first time this has happened, Chris, um, is what you're saying. Yeah, oh, a, and, a and, but I should have said, <laughs> yeah, I love, I love, maybe I should clarify. It wasn't, it wasn't sarcastic racism that got me in trouble with Liam. So no, no. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's no, it was sarcasm. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, yeah. yeah I, it was, it was, it's not always sarcastic racism. That would be a problem. Look, Chris, I'm going to take your side because I'm a loyal co-host and I'm going to say that the real problem here is with Americans who do not understand irony and sarcasm properly. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I, I mean, I, I was talking to someone about this and they were saying that there's a running theme on the podcast that I do normally mention at some point that somebody has misunderstood my sarcasm as a serious thing that's caused trouble. So <laughs> it isn't an entirely rare experience <laughs> um, in general. So yeah, maybe that should, maybe that should tell me something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I'm going to apportion blame equal here. On one hand, yes, you do have a problem with your relationships and communications. On the other hand, you know, uh, just uh, a couple of days ago, I was, I described myself as some combination of um, Gandalf and Jean-Luc Picard. And I was, I thought that was a clear setup for people to make fun of me. This was, a, this was the joke, but no. The, oh, did the, you, Matt? This that is, sounds very much like you, you grandiose bastard. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But instead of tearing me down, my friends on Twitter go, went, hmm, yeah, yeah, you kind of are. 
which was very nice of them, but I felt very uncomfortable. <laughs> so welcome to decoding the self-deprecators. Um, this is highlighting, you know, the beauty of Australian and Northern Irish culture, which is only fun if the other people play along. <laughs> play along, you bastards. Yeah, when the sarcasm or the self-deprecation goes past, or the, or in your case, it's grandiosity, um, but <laughs> intended as self-deprecation, but if that doesn't land, you just come across as like a Weinstein. As a, I thought you were going to say wanker, but that's you know, well, close enough. Well, there's um. subtle differences in the terminology. <laughs> but speaking of Weinsteins, <laughs> today is a monumental day because two academics, I should have their names, yeah, Timothy Nguyen and Theo Polia. I probably butchered both their names, so I'm sorry for that, but... They have published a preprint called A Response to Geometric Unity, which is Eric's grand theory of everything. And what they've done, there's a kind of remarkable effort, is they worked from his presentations and ramblings and various podcasts and like things that he scrawled on the board or written on notepads, or, you know, that you can see in videos. And they've extracted from that the mathematical formulas or their best guess at what his theory is proposing and they've tried to like put it all down in a paper that eric has never managed to do and then to take it seriously and see you know where the the issues and flaws are and of course there's massive gaping issues that it's not well specified and it's it's very vague but they also point out issues uh kind of theoretical issues with the model even if you're being charitable and it's a remarkable effort it seems like the kind of thing which if you really were invested in your theory this should be seen as good quality criticism but i've got a funny feeling that eric is not going to respond with great enthusiasm to this effort oh i think you're being too pessimistic i'm sure he's going to uh, respond to this by writing down his theory in his own article um, provide all the mathematical details, um, make a rejoinder to those criticisms, and the march of science will go on. I'm sure that's what will happen. Yeah. I mean, one of us is right. <laughs> I, I wonder who it will be. That's Time will tell, Matt. Time will tell. Well, the, 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 the final sentence from that preprint is, we hope our response is an encouragement to Weinstein to provide further clarity to his ideas ideally as a technical paper. So that's a good suggestion, I think. Good suggestion. Yeah. Oh, for, I know we're not, we don't do our state of the gurus thing, but we can do funny guru crap that's going on in the world. It's, that's the new name for a different set. <laughs> <laughs> um, and our last guru, uh, Nassim Talib, was on the Rampage recently, and I find it quite funny because he, he just launched a broadside against Joe Rogan. And I'm going to read it. So this was Joe Rogan was apologizing for Ted Cruz, who, for anybody listening, you know, in the future, Ted Cruz, the American Republican bastard slash politician, went out of the state of Texas to Cancun when they were having this crisis with the power shortage due to extreme weather conditions, extreme cold. And uh, anyway, Joe Rogan was saying, why is that a problem? He can't control the weather. 
good good Joe, he's got the issue there. Um, but Tally responded by uh, saying the following on Twitter. Joe Rogan is a despicable man, low and despicable. It's like saying, why should a mother care about a sick child? Is she a doctor? Can she make him better? Comedians should know when to keep their mouth shut in the presence of tragic events, as well as matters of a high moral dimension. About 60 people died in Texas. So it seems that he's genuinely annoyed. And I I like this because I think it's a good illustration of how Talib is different from some of the other people that we've looked at who wouldn't bite that hand, right? They wouldn't launch such a searing critique against Joe Rogan, somebody who could give them a platform and who is generally favorable towards anybody who's offering, you know, heterodox or maybe right-leaning heterodox opinion. So it is entertaining to see Taleb when he's on the warpath sometimes. Yeah, you could really see the appeal, um, certainly. Yeah, he's got that strong don't give an F energy. So, yeah, and you have to like that. It's it's it's, it's appealing. Yeah, I, I think we, we had him right on the last episode. So the other thing, Matt, before mm. we get into the man of the hour, Ibram X Candy, which we didn't mention, I think yet. Um, <laughs> no, we just we just told people it was going to be racist. Yeah, we just a black <laughs> academic and stuff. Like, oh god. Uh, anyway, the um, it's, what was I talking about? Oh right, yeah, yeah. Mention- So, Matt, we did a we did a special episode relatively recently with Matthew Ramsky from Conspirituality. And one I wanted to recommend that anybody that skips the special episodes, don't do it. They're good. There was a really good interview with the philosopher <laughs> T. Nguyen, and now there's a really good interview with Matthew Ramsky. And you get to hear things like, you know, why I will be telling Matt at the end of this podcast to, to grovel at the feet of his muscle master. You'll never get that reference if you don't listen. But um, <laughs> I want, you know, we were giving shout outs. I think we forgot to do that for a couple of podcasts, but I wanted to give a shout out on this episode to Conspirituality, which is a podcast focusing on the overlap between conspiracies and and right-wing reactionary movements and the alternative spirituality and yoga and health and wellness sphere, nicely embodied by the body of GP Sears. Um, so yeah, that, like I think their, their podcast, it, it covers similar topics from us, but they... They've got really good insights to maybe a bit more serious than us. And I I really think it's a good companion and that people would be better off listening to them. So, but but don't all go. Like uh, yeah. <laughs> you could they, listen to both. They could listen to both podcasts. That's right. You've got room in your life for two long form podcasts. Like yeah. just drop Joe Rogan. Um yeah. No, no, they're, they're definitely a fantastic podcast. You could they're kind of like our imagine our podcast, but with a different scope and much better, better people and better people who <laughs> speak better and use better words. That would be yeah, they, and, and they don't uh, they don't have obscurantist accents. No, <laughs> is no. that is that or or use words incorrectly? You know, there's there's, there's tons <laughs> of things that they get better. So yeah, hmm. that, that that was what I wanted to do. Now, Matt, is there anything that happened to you? For our listeners' sake, I want to say that Matt is soldiering through this podcast as a sick little person. So I was going to say soldier, but that repeats it twice. Um, 
<laughs> and yeah, so if you hear him cough or vomit or whatever it is, just that's the dedication he has. So so yes, thank you, Matt. Yes, you're very welcome. This is this is brightening up um, my week because it's been otherwise spent in bed, being bored, spending too much time on Twitter. So I wonder if being sleep deprived, you know, if staying up late to have long conversations mm. could make someone more susceptible to catching illnesses. I, I don't, I don't know why I wonder that. It's just a thought that crosses my mind. Yeah, it could, that could, that could happen. Yeah, are you saying I could bill some of my medical expenses to our Patreon? That, that uh, well, that's a, it's a thought. It's a thought. They, they, yeah, the sacrifices you make for the uh, the podcast are real. Okay. <laughs> They are bodily and they are here. So uh, Matt's takes today, even if they're super racist, just remember, it's just because he's got the cold and he's a bit, you know, he's on medication. That's what it's all about. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, Okay. Shall we turn to the man of the hour? Yes, Matt, we shall. Let's just fucking do it. Beautifully. (laughs) It works seamlessly. (laughs) Let's do it indeed. Throw caution to the wind. So who who do we have today? I, I usually Google them on Wikipedia, which helps. We didn't actually talk about who's going to introduce them. So it's Ibram X. Candy. People kept asking us to do him repeatedly. And he's, he's a properly left-wing guru, I would say. So this is us back in our both-siderism, centrist bullshit uh, sphere. And who he is is an American author, professor, activist, and historian of race and discriminatory policy in America, the director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. And he's read a bunch of influential books. He's a figure that draws a lot of ire in culture war circles. And I think his most famous books are how to be an anti-racist, stamped, racism, anti-racism, and you, and the children's book, Anti-Racist Baby. So that probably gives a a general gist of the topic that he's covering, which Mm. is racism and anti-racism. And I feel, Matt, we should acknowledge at this point that, as if we haven't flagged this up, you know, enough already, but there is a certain trepidation about discussing Abram and this topic. Um, yeah. Well, you know, did you think? Well, we talked about this. I, I don't really feel it at the moment. Anyway, after listening to him in particular, I didn't know much about him before we decided to cover him, um, except for the general chatter on Twitter. But after listening to his content, I thought there was some sensible things to be said, both good and bad. So, jokes aside, I don't think it'll be particularly exceptional yes i would say though it's a simple fact undeniable if you see us that we're two white middle-aged guys one of us more so than the other and we you're what you're whiter than me Chris. <laughs> yeah, well, that's well that's true that is true i don't have your orange glow but the um <laughs> we also aren't from america and i feel like a lot of this this area is like a quite American thing, right? It's talking about the situation in America and the racial dynamics there. So there's an element that it has to be flagged up that we are approaching this from the vantage point that we have, which is 
not American, and as two white guys. Yeah, but on the other hand, I think it could be kind of interesting to get an outsider's perspective. Um, so, yeah, America does talk and think about these things differently, I've discovered, from um, Australia and I presume from Ireland. Yeah. So even though we're probably very naive in some ways, perhaps just a, an outside naive point of view could be interesting yeah and the level of pitch you reached <laughs> highlights that but i i also think that and this is this is a thing i'll like stand by i don't really like the standpoint epistemology stuff I like i don't know it that well for a start but at least the popularized version of it where you shouldn't comment or have opinions about other people's experiences that you haven't lived right i don't think that's true because I can see the validity to the kind of the modern Bailey position of it. The good version of that is like, okay, I grew up in Belfast and I think it's fair to say that somebody who didn't grow up there during the troubles would have difficulty understanding the, the like dynamics there in the way that somebody who grew up there would. But I also think that people who read about the troubles or do research on the troubles or have other experiences related to bigotry and segregation and civil conflicts that they could understand. And that that even people who have none of those experiences can read things and be touched by it. And they might have insight that people who are inside the experience don't have. I've, I've seen people who comment on Northern Ireland and they've done it like with woeful ignorance and i've seen people that have commented on it and been very insightful even though they didn't live through it Mm. so yeah i i'm just yeah i'm just agreeing with us that it's okay that we talk about this (laughs) okay so i think with our podcast what we're trying to do is not so much offer our unique insights into the topic or our um, hot takes even though our opinions will naturally bleed into it what I think we try to do is look at the arguments that are being made in a very academic, dispassionate, logical, analytic kind of manner. Very much how we would uh, review and edit a graduate student's work. And, you know, so that's just a particular way of dealing with stuff. You know, it's not the only metric by which to assess things, but, you know, that's what we'll be doing with all the gurus. And what we found is when you do do that a lot of the time, it, it has internal inconsistencies and logical gaps and, and large leaps and problems in reasoning that I think anybody who can think can identify. So I think that's going to be my approach to this. Yeah, I am themed for my objectivity and lack of critical passion. <laughs> or Yeah, and so I, I just endorse that, Matt, that I fully achieve the scientific goal of perfect objectivity and it's, it's got gurus. such a bad it's got such a bad rep in the current zeitgeist hey if you um when, when you say that you're being objective and dispassionate people just go bah <laughs> no you're not rationalist bro you rationalist yeah. bro moron but i think the point unless i've accidentally wandered in the podcast with sam harris is that you acknowledge that's the goal to strive for, right? And that, of course, there's imperfections. Of course, there's subjectivity that comes into analysis and all these kind of things. And and that's inevitable. And nobody is claiming that we're doing a completely scientific breakdown of every little voice inflection that people have or that kind of thing. But striving for a degree of objectivity and not simply 
Murray and Weinstein style like impressions and hot takes. I I feel it's okay. That's a that's like a decent goal, and there should be more emphasis now. I think we're being too cautious in representing this. Surely, when you're an academic and you read a paper, an academic article about anything, the whole premise of the idea is that you can read what's being said and evaluate it and integrate it into your brain. So you don't just read stuff and go, well, that's their opinion. So I can't really comment on it because, <laughs> you know, I can't, ha- I can't evaluate it at all. Of course, of course you can. That's, that's the, whole, the whole premise of academia is built on that idea. Yeah, I would say there's a whole bunch of internal contradictions with this, that like academics who are advocating those things do not practice what they're preaching and they're feuding. So yeah, everybody's screwed and they, they all fall short, including us. But yeah, you know, you and I don't have that many strong disagreements. So this is probably the best that people are going to get. <laughs> we do, what we need is the issue that just really upsets both of us. We're too laid back. So we can have like a, a what is it? Very bad wizard. Sometimes they got annoyed with each other and started shouting at each other. And it was kind of entertaining Okay. To listen to drama. Yeah, yeah. Let's try to let's, let's try to have a proper debate. Yeah. So stop thinking you're objective, Matt. You subjective <laughs> pig. <laughs> okay, okay. You muddle-headed relativist. Let's go for it. But I think, in all seriousness, we should cut probably all of that out and actually show people what we do rather than tell them. You what? know what I mean? What? I, I say we just get into it. You cut it out. I say well, we we're going to get it. into it. I say we just fucking do it. It's just fucking do. Look, we're famed for our ability to be concise, to not do this long-winded take some things and waffle around the topic. So, okay, yeah, maybe let's now start looking at clips with candy. But I like that is not philosophy of decoding the gurus stuff. That stuff matters. We we need to hash this out in the open map for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> don't laugh i was serious okay. <laughs> no, 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 okay yep sure right, fine 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 well it. okay i'm gonna I'm let candy i've got a clip i think it's a good start to his world view and the connections that he's gonna put in a good overview just to get the ball rolling and so then that was the racist idea so you had the self-interest the power leading to the racist policies, then out of the racist policies and the need to, to justify them, project them, campaign for them, were racist ideas. And then you had everyday Americans who were believing these ideas, who went on to believe, yes, you know, these black and brown people are voting fraudulently and they're ruining this country. And then they, some of them were obviously ignorant about who was actually corrupting the voting process. And then some of them were even hateful. And so then you had the racist policies leading to the racist ideas, and that's how historically it has been. Okay. So any thoughts? Yeah. So, again, let's debate this, but my take on that is a positive one. I, I like the idea that the somewhat delusional ideas about you know, superiority and prejudice based on um, racial categories are ultimately based in some kind of pragmatic self-interest, at least historically. And I think that's true if you shifted the question to, say, sex discrimination, where, you know, those women are inferior and their their places in the home and the most qualified person to make all the decisions is the man. Like, those sorts of 
sexist ideas, I, th- I think it's pretty plausible to say that they ultimately stem from the self-interest of the guys, right? So um, I think that's what Kendi is explaining there. Yeah, so I think that uh, that clip is giving a broad overview of a bunch of things that we need to go into in more detail. But it, I think it shows the logical flow that he sees how things connect. So he starts with the issue of power, right? Which is a familiar thing for as, as a critique that lefty people focus too much on Foucauldian notions of power. But he starts from power, who has it? And then the next point to when power is challenged, that racist policies emerge in order to protect the power from changing hands to more equitable situations. And then those policies in turn lead people into differential outcomes, which reinforce racist thought, right? That this group is doing worse than this group. And that's because of a failure of that group. Now, the one thing I would say there is like, I think he's a little bit too dogmatic in a certain sense about the flow. And I don't think he, I actually, I don't think he is when he's being more nuanced, but the notion that racist policy proceeds racist thought, that's not always the case, right? There are people who are legitimately motivated by racial animus in designing policies which are racist. So it isn't just that the policy creates racist thoughts. There there are people who are just genuinely racist who think that other races are inferior and design policies with that in mind. And granted, they might not be the majority in modern society, but I, I think it's good to point out that there can be situations where that relationship exists. But I, I just feel it's a little bit too strict to say that that's... One, one dimension. Yeah, that the, the flow yeah. is always like that. I would imagine you back channels and in some circumstances, things coming downstream with policy being, you know, at near the last. Let me, let me put it like this. What I hear him saying is that, like, first of all, he's talking at a societal level, right? I wouldn't disagree with you that, look, random people have random opinions about everything. Yeah. So you can have someone who is just inexplicably racist against or, like, or hates Jewish people, for instance, and there's really no good reason for it in terms of it being instrumental or useful or pragmatic for them or society or whatever. Yeah. But I guess he, he's focused at that societal level, at that big scale where do these things come from? And I guess I'm just accepting his framing there. And if I think of examples like um, India's caste system, for instance, I mean, it involves a lot of prejudice and discrimination. That doesn't come from nowhere, right? It, it's it, it's obviously something that, that arose because it serves the interest of the upper castes, yeah? Yeah. But you, you end up with a chicken and egg situation, right? Like, of course, some group has power but it's in, it's drawn from religious texts, for example, and and somebody yes, somebody mm-hmm. composed them. But you know, I feel that you end up with this situation mm-hmm. where where you're drawing yep. the line between power and policies and structural forces. There's a lot of back and forth arrows there, and is the discrimination coming in some sense in the holy doctrines that they're specifying systems? that entail 
distinctions between castes. And in that case, are there not people who are drawing from those scriptural justifications? Mm. But, you know, Kendi could say, well, but that's ultimately about who had the power to make those scriptures. And so I, I think it's a complex topic. I'm not dismissing the way that he is framing it as wrong. I'm just saying, for me, it feels like it's a partial picture, but one that should be emphasized that you don't need to focus on racist sentiments being necessary for racist systems to exist. Like, that's, that's, that's clearly the case, although it's a little counterintuitive. And maybe I'll play another clip continuing on your point. Let's start with his definition of racist, because I, I think this is crucial to a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, so most people think of a racist or even a not racist, um, or even they would presume that an anti-racist are nouns, when, when really they're descriptive terms, they're more verbs. And, and, and so I, I think that first and foremost, I define a racist as someone who is expressing a racist idea or supporting a racist policy with their action or inaction. So I, I think the important point there is that you can be racist without actually being intentionally motivated by your hatred of other races. Like that isn't the, for his definition of racist, that isn't necessary. It's simply action which supports racist policies. And that as a result of that, it means that individuals should not be considered wholly racist because in a moment they can be racist and in the next minute they can be anti-racist. In the moments that we are expressing a racist idea that something is wrong with Latinx immigrants or, or Black people or um, you know Asian Americans, the, the times in which we're expressing those ideas, we're being racist. And if in the very next moment we are making the case that there is nothing wrong with any racial group of people in that very next moment, we're being anti-racist. It's like it's situational rather than dispositional in psychological terms. Isn't that right? I guess that seems a pretty, you know, in as far as it goes, a pretty plausible way to describe um, or define racism. I mean, I guess in everyday language when people talk about racists it's a little bit different well i think we should spend some time on the racist and uh, racism definitions that he uses but before we get there so you mentioned about the policies right R racist policies and how they can be enacted in the world and and lead to racist thought or outcomes so i think he gives a pretty good example of this talking about voter suppression. You, you also have a growing percentage of, of people of color. And since, because they probably were looking at those trends, particularly during the first term of the Obama administration, and seeing that those trends were not amicable, you know, to their political prospects. And, and so what happens is some of these folks weren't like, well, we're in a democracy, so there's nearly not much I can do. You know, majority sort of wins and rules. No, they said, well, when you don't have enough votes, you start figuring out a way to suppress votes. And so then, out of political self-interest, they 
started or continued to advocate for voter suppression policies like voter ID laws. And, you know, those policies have been found to target African-American voters with, with, quote, surgical precision. That touches on a topic that um, has interested me, the way that the various um, United States states manage their voting system, which to an Australian just seems absolutely nuts. Um, we've, we've got some history of uh, gerrymandering and stuff over here, but that's it's since been mostly taken care of via independent processes. And we also have a compulsory voting system, which I think is a good idea. And voting is, from what I can tell, in many places in the US, and you know, I realise that the news can be a bit distorting here, but it seems kind of crazy to me, the restrictions and the difficulties, so at least some people have in some places in voting. So on, on voting day, which is always on a weekend, you, no one has to work on a, on a day, uh, on a voting day, then there's a, there's, there's a place to vote. And it, it, I've lived in many different places and it's never taken more than a few minutes. Um, and you don't have to provide ID or anything like that. You just say, this is my name. Um, you, you let them know your address. They look you up in the roll. They tick you off. It's done. Yeah. So this is one of the examples I think where people that focus on him as a culture war figure, they maybe are overlooking this kind of stuff where he's documenting a very, very real phenomenon in America that the Republican Party, it's, it's not even debatable. It's empirical fact that they pursue policies which suppress the votes of specific minority groups that would likely vote against them. And he's making the case that, in some sense, this is entirely understandable because they're acting out of their political self-interest because they're noticing the changing demographics. And so you would expect them or expect people, uh, at least people making policies, to favor policies that would allow them to maintain power even as the demographics change. And there's another clip where he's explicit about how they justify doing this, like engaging in voter suppression. And I think it's a, it's another good point. So I will play it if you don't mind, Matt. But then they had to justify those policies. They had to explain to their voters and other Americans why they were instituting voter ID policies, why they were purging so many voters from voter rolls, why they were cutting early voting programs. And the case that they made was voter fraud. <laughs> So, in other words, they created this idea that all these people were voting fraudulently, which the data proved to be an almost non-existent problem. And, but it really harkened back to this idea that black and brown voters are essentially corrupting the system. Um, and that was the dominant idea during the Reconstruction era that Ku Klux Klansmen and other neo-Confederates used to undermine these interracial Southern governments. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't know about the about the history anywhere near as much as I should, but even just thinking about the present day, there, Chris, I, I think it's indisputable that Republicans are quite keen on restrictive conditions for voting because it does benefit them at the polls. It's a very pragmatic, if not a particularly ethical, uh, approach to take. Um, my take is a little bit different, perhaps, from Kennedy's, but it sort of fits with his overall worldview in a weird way, which is that. I think that their intent is purely self-interested. 
they just want <laughs> they just want to win the next the the elections, right? Mm-hmm. The outcome is to disenfranchise disproportionately uh, non-white voters. So I'm pretty comfortable with calling those methods uh, racist because the impact is racist, right? But their intent was not necessarily, um, um, you know. Yeah, he doesn't think the intent matters, though, at all. Yes, that's kind of my point, that I agree with him, that like in, in this example, it doesn't matter, does it? I mean, why, why should it matter if the outcome is to take away votes from African-Americans? Yeah, I agree. So, like, I think this is an example where he clearly does know the history. I think this is a very reasonable point to make, academically informed, well stated, and something that it's useful for people to think about. So I wouldn't immediately see from this kind of clip why he would engender so much controversy, Mm. because his tone is quite academic. And yes, he's talking about racism, but it comes across pretty well there right yeah yeah exactly i mean you know both you and i have been in the the online discourse and the and the the whole world and a lot of the criticisms of people like kendi is that they're super woke and that they have these very complicated abstract nebulous concepts that don't really relate to the real world but um just wanted to underline your point really that when Kendi's talking about things like this, it's pretty straightforward. It's very concrete and it's something very specific that doesn't seem like it should be controversial. Yeah. So let's skip now to like his definitions of what's racist and what's racism. I think it's it's important because it comes up in all of the other parts that we'll look at. So we've already touched on his definition of racist, that it's about the action and and in particular focused on outcomes. In in some sense, he's an ultimate consequentialist when it comes to it. But part of the reason he causes controversy is in his definitions of what's racist and what's racism. And let's hear him explain these, the distinctions between them a little bit. When we talk about racism with an M, so R-A-C-I-S-M, did I spell it right? (laughs) Racism. when we when we think about racism racism is essentially structural it's essentially systematic uh it is essentially institutional and i think it's critical for us to distinguish between racism with an m with racist with a t so racist is individual racist is an individual person or an idea or a policy okay I think this is a case which is very familiar to me as an academic where somebody starts as their premise. Here is a very specific way that I'm defining terms, which I think is better and which I will apply. So in this case, his argument is that racism with an M is always structural and systemic. Arises from policy. Yeah, and it shouldn't be considered at an individual level. So if you're saying racism is a problem, you shouldn't be talking about individual racists. You should be talking at the level of society and or government. And racist, on the other hand, is focused at the individual, but it also shouldn't be describing an individual's character. It should be describing their action. And the first thing for me here is that, like, I get what his argument is, but I also think using bespoke definitions of common terms 
invites confusion because what you are referring to with racism and racist will not overlap with what other people understand it to be. And so where you're writing an academic paper or giving a talk or this kind of thing, I feel that you can do that. You set out your definitions and you apply them. But when you start talking to like broad audiences and making policy recommendations or having your books on bestseller lists, I feel that you start to run the issue that you're bumping into common usage. And if you say, when you talk about racism, we can't talk or we shouldn't talk about individuals who harbor racial animus. Well, then we we need a word for that because that exists. And that is also what people are talking about when they use those words. Look, I'll, I might play devil's advocate here, Chris, or maybe not. But so like you, I quite like that he's carefully defined his terms. And I don't really mind um, how they're defined as, as long as they make sense and, and, mm-hmm. and they're neatly described, then I'm happy with them. So I'm quite happy with the definition of racism as a, as a systemic thing, a policy thing. He talks about racists as racist behavior mm, not racist though right that's the thing yeah yeah well that's well that's what i'm going to get to yeah so that's i mean it's a problem with that particular word because it is so emotionally charged isn't it it just it carries such strong violence in in everyday usage that i could see potential for people using those words in a less careful way one could say flip between definitions and maybe cause some confusion yes and i think also there's an issue that racist is not commonly understood as just like an action it is also a noun for a type of person and candy would agree that there are people who not just in the moment act racist but have like a racist ideology which entails discrimination and in that case it feels like you need a term for people like Richard Spencer or David Duke, right? You you still need a word that refers to them. And the normal word is racist. Yeah. But so there's quite a lot of bits where he, he talks about this. And it's yeah. interesting to me because he's like a very strong individualist in his approach. Like he, I think the criticism of him is that he is applying categories to these massive groups of people willy-nilly and like extending the usage of terms. But I'll play a couple of clips and you'll hear that he's got a really individualistic position on how we should look at these situations. And in some sense, it's quite humanistic. So, okay, let's hear this. And I don't think Americans and other people around the world realize that when they use the term racist and even not racist as identities, when they think of racist as an attack word, as a pejorative term, almost like the R word, they are trafficking in really white nationalist ideology. White nationalists have long advocated that racist is a term wielded at white people to hurt them and to attack them. And I don't think people realize that they hold so much white nationalist thought. Okay, Matt, before... Okay. No, Uh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to ask for clarification whether... Is is he saying that we absolutely shouldn't 
use the word racist as a pejorative and that people who do do that are in a way supporting white nationalism yeah i think so and his argument for that seems to be that white nationalists use that people are called racist and that it it carries a pejorative stain and is used as an attack on reputation that this is you know they use this as a rallying call that look they call us racist but we're we're not and i know that white nationalists do that but i don't think that acknowledging that there are racists in the world motivated by racist views and thoughts is playing into white nationalist thought you know what i mean like using racist in a disparaging term like you say he links that to agreeing with the white nationalists and i i think that's a weird logical leap well, okay, so I guess I'm struggling because on on one hand, if I just focus on what he's saying, I think it sounds like a good idea to avoid categorizing and labeling people as being racist or anti-racist or and whatever, right? Because that, that sort of categorization um, leads to problems like where do you draw the line? And, you know, anyone who's even touched upon the culture wars knows that a big complaint on the other side is that, oh, you committed a microaggression and you've been labelled a racist and that's that's bad. So, so I like what he's saying, in, but at the same time in my head, I'm, I can't help but think about how those words, the people who would definitely be strongly aligned with, with Kendi, how it plays out in the discourse because it doesn't play out anything like what, as how he's describing. People do use those words as pejoratives and... They do use it as a, a stigmatized category. And, you know, that's pretty natural, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah. So we forgot to mention at the start of this, the actual content that we're taking this from, by the way. But um, we have two interviews that I clipped from. One is the feed the right wolf or something. I forget which one you feed. That's the name of the podcast. And it's a short 30 minute interview. And the other one was, Ezra Klein's extended to our interview with him where he expands on some things. And I think it would be good to play some of the clips from Ezra Klein because it gets into some of the issues that we're touching on. But before that, just dwelling a bit on this position that racist and anti-racist is situational. It's not about character. So he explains this in quite a lot of detail. And I think it's really important because it gets to the distinction that you're making about why he doesn't want people to use it as a pejorative and why he thinks it's silly to do so. One of the reasons why I ended up using the term racist idea, um, as opposed to writing a history of racists with an S, is because I found so many people in American history who would simultaneously express notions of racial hierarchy and notions of racial equality in the same speech, in the same book, in the same chapter of the same book. And so in that type of case, how would I identify them if we're identifying people as this sort of fixed category? Like you're either a racist, you're an anti-racist, and that's what you're going to be. We can't because they're constantly in their speeches, in their writings, in their sayings, based on the policies they support, people are deeply contradictory and complex. And I think by defining racist as a descriptive, using it, understanding it as a descriptive term, 
and it describes what a person does that moment. In other words, when you said in that in that moment that black people are lazy, in that moment you were being a racist. Now, in the next moment, if you said, you know what, I now realize black people are not lazy, and in that moment you're being an anti-racist. Well, I have to point out that he has written a book called Anti-Racist Baby. So... I'm wondering. <laughs> he does seem to have used it as as a now as a noun as a descriptor of the baby. Oh, maybe he means just a baby that behaves in an anti-racist way quite often at specific <laughs> moments. Yeah, but I think you're heading on a very important point because I, there are points in the interview. I don't know if we'll we'll come across them, but I noticed them where the usage slipped to the normal usage, or at least there was an implication of that. And that's totally understandable because the word is so commonly used and has such a well understood meaning that it would be odd if you didn't slip into the original use of language at at times. But that's confusing then because you've specified that that doesn't happen. So the anti-racist baby is a great example because what does, although we should probably read the book before we we judge that. But so Ezra Klein, there's this series of clips and I think it gets to a point that we are touching on, but Ezra does it quite nicely. So here's the first one talking about these kind of problems that we are highlighting. But I think there has to also be some recognition that, that people are picking up on something real when they say that, this is a this is a dangerous thing to be called. That if you are called it and people disagree on what is meant when you are called it, they disagree that it is like a value neutral term describing support for ideas of a wide and racial difference, as opposed to the term people mean when they say you hate people of another race. Mm-hmm. That that there's a that there's a a, a danger there and a, a condemnation involved. I mean, it just feels like we're really in a place where we like the the. The competing definitions are so far apart yeah. that it's hard to have clarity in the conversation. I, I agree. And and I, I wouldn't say that a person is not being condemned when they're being called racist. What I'm saying is that it's not saying that you are fundamentally and essentially a racist and you will always be a racist and you are fundamentally an evil, bad person and like all of those types of ideas. And I do agree that as much as the left and the right and the center debates on what racist, what a racist is, they agree on this fundamental idea that a racist is a bad, as a horrible person, and it is essential to a, who a person is. And that's one of the things that I'm pushing back against with my work. Like To me, this was a little bit surprising, right? Because the way he was characterized online is that he's labeling everyone are racist in a disparaging sense but like his definition here i mean i know that if someone calls you a racist it's not a good thing and i think he doesn't actually grapple that well with the fact that labeling someone as a racist has you know potential employment social consequences for them it isn't taken as oh you just did a bit of racism but you can be anti-racist in the next and people don't act like that in general but he in his formulation, it is humanistic, right? He, yeah. He's saying, I don't judge people as fundamentally bad just because they're racist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's quite different from the stereotypes that his opponents would would cast in, in his formulation, as you say. It reminds me of that Christian idea of loving the sinner and hating the sin. Mm. 
Yeah, you're making that super strong distinction. But yeah, I think the trouble that he's got or anyone has got in trying to apply that formulation is that even if you say that, okay, one is not essentially a racist or that they could never not be racist in the future, I think it's still a fact that if someone is racist in in an egregious way in the moment, then they will will suffer quite strong consequences. Yeah, I also think there is a little bit on his online interactions, the slipping between that, because I don't know, maybe this is unfair, but it seems like when he's attaching to people the label, you know, if you're not anti-racist, you're racist. There's a definite pejorative implication there for the majority of the world and acting like your definition should replace that. Like academics do that all the time. They take a word and they they apply their definition and then say, well, that's not what I mean when I say (laughs) the term. But I feel like that leads to confusion. It can lead to confusion. And you have to be honest that your bespoke definition doesn't replace the common usage of the term. An example, which is nothing to Well, actually, it does have stuff to do with racism. But David Sloan Wilson, uh, this evolutionary theorist, he thought that the term social Darwinism was unfairly maligned because he was essentially saying this shouldn't be associated with Darwin. It should be associated with Galton and the people who were strongly focused on eugenics. And social Darwinism is a misnomer because Darwin was not that interested in eugenics. So his argument was, I'm going to use social Darwinism just to talk about applying evolutionary insight to social things. And what he needed to do every time he did that was be like, I'm going to advocate for social Darwinism. No, not that one. (laughs) (laughs) And it felt like, yeah, just use a different term then because you can't do that. You can't say... I'm going to use this term in a way that the public don't understand it. The majority of academics don't use it that way. And then I'm going to act like people should understand that because no, there's associations with that term that already exists that you can't just overwrite by force of academic will. Yeah. So I guess my thought to that is that trying to imagine if Kendi did as you suggest and employed a brief technical bespoke Mm -hmm. phrase to describe what he's talking about i don't think his work would have anywhere near the same level of take up and popularity because it it does it really is the the magic word and the magic topic that people are highly engaged with especially um, um in the united states and especially at this present point in time yes that i completely agree with that By using those terms, it makes things much more salient. But I think that could be a point of criticism in a sense that we would be calling out people who were using hyperbolic branding on the opposing side. But the the issue is he is talking about racist policies. He's talking about voter suppression, which is targeting people of different ethnicities and trying to disenfranchise them, right? Like, so I think we should be calling that what it is yeah yeah look it, i probably wasn't clear chris i in what i said I, I i guess i did mean it as a criticism i think he's employed he's stuck with the popular usage precisely because it will 
maximize interest, maximize take up, maximize impact. But in using that bespoke definition, which assumes there is really no pejorative mm. categorization associated with the word, then it probably leads to a fundamental confusion, both in the people who are criticizing him, but also the people that are very much on the same side of anti-racism and social justice and so on, who then go on to, to use those ideas and I guess leveraging the conclusions that he comes to using the bespoke term, but then employing them using the usual usage of the term. Yes. So let me continue on then with where the conversation with Ezra goes, because it gets to some of the other nitty gritty points. So this is Ezra asking about how we use this terminology and still distinguish like Richard Spencer from somebody who just in the moment supports a racist policy. How, how do we define those if we can't use the term racist for somebody who is usually and fundamentally racist? It seems to me that when that you almost still then need a word to separate what you mean when you're talking about the politician who is supporting a capital gains tax cut because they've been convinced it would be good for the economy and the person who is operating out of an animus for people of other races or mm -hmm. a desire to keep their race separate and superior to to in a hierarchy from mm -hmm. people of other races, right? You can even get the question of hate aside. It might just be a racial hierarchy thing. Do you like what do you how do you distinguish those two ideas in this um, schema? Yeah, so you know, as you, with my last book, Stamp from the Beginning, I really characterized two kinds of racist um, or even two kinds of racist ideas the segregationist ideas or segregationist and assimilationist. And, and, and historically, segregationists have been the people who have supported the enslaving, the slave trading the Jim Crowing, the segregating, the mass incarcerating, the mass deporting, the lynching and the killing. And, you know, obviously, you know, that's along the lines of Richard Spencer. And then you've had other people who have rejected segregationists, have rejected their segregation, their enslavement uh, policies, their mass incarceration, but then simultaneously felt that there was still something wrong with black people. So for me, that then illustrates that Kendi does acknowledge we need this distinction between these two types of racists, the type that are motivated by their racial animus and hatred for different people of different races and, mm. and the other type, which might not be overtly motivated by that, but may engage in things to support racist policies in order to preserve power. And I, I feel like if you have this term, segregationists and assimilationists, that you're, you are acknowledging that this is an important distinction, but now you have a terminology which could potentially confuse people, right? Like, no, I, I don't mean that those terms are confusing, but you've invented a new term for a thing which racist is usually used to describe. Mm. Yeah, maybe the correct approach there is just to admit degrees you know, amount, uh, differing degrees uh, and, and not treating it as a, a blanket category where someone like Richard Spencer is in the same category of someone who makes a, a thoughtless off-colour joke, but is otherwise not too bad, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I kind of like where he's coming from, which is to focus 
um, not on the sort of essentialism and categorizing racist people. Sure, they exist or whatever, but in a way, we don't really care what's going on in the heart of Richard Spencer. Yeah, what we care about is what he does, what problems he causes um, the rest of us. But focusing on those sort of differing degrees, I mean, I'm trying to relate this to some experiences in my own life. And I remember I was taking the dog for a walk and I said good morning to this old guy. And um, he said, it's a bit Japanese this morning. What? And I said, what? And he said, you know, Japanese. And I said, what? And he said, you know, and it was beginning to get, get a bit uncomfortable now because I wasn't impressed. He said, you know, nippy. Oh, so get it, Chris? Get it? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that that's pretty racist, right? Right, as well as being just a just a god awful, just bad joke. Um, not even a joke. But anyway, so that's that's something. But you know, who knows what's going on with this guy? He could be a terrible racist, right? He probably isn't, right? He's probably just an old fart who tells really bad jokes and. Is from a different generation and all that stuff, right? And the different generation may have been be fine with racism, right? Like, uh... yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's right. But the only problem was is that he offended me, right? And that's what, and that caused a, that caused a problem. But but another example, we had some some very good friends, a psychologist and a psychiatrist who were, had immigrated from India, um, living near us, and just absolutely lovely couple, salt of the earth types, and we, we were we would see them often and one time over lunch they were telling me about her sister who was currently in the United States studying and I made an offhand joke about oh maybe she'll meet a a nice American boy over there and get married and they were shocked (laughs) that that I would uh, suggest that thing and from the conversation that happened afterwards it was clear that they and their family, the the thought of them marrying someone who wasn't Indian and from their particular sort of ethnic group in India and probably their class as well, uh, was completely completely appalling to them. So I just I thought of that when the clip you were playing was referring to segregationism because that's a kind of segregationism. I'm sure this couple have no hatred in their hearts for Americans or, or, or white people, right? It's just they they very much thought that they, they should stick to their own people when it comes to uh, marriage. And yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so, but I, I was I was a bit disappointed about that, right? Because at least according to my lights, I, I see it as, as not healthy. I was disappointed, but I didn't think so much less of them. Like I still thought they were lovely people and everything. Yeah, and like I take that point and I agree with that as well. Like what people, and I think there's a problem people often have online is that they expect racists to be these like caricatured villains who'd like spit whenever they walk past someone of a different race. And then when they see someone who can smile and be polite to black people or Asians or to anybody that's not white, they're like, well, look, how can that person be racist? They can talk to people as if they're normal. And they said that they like to visit Japan and so on. And I, what my image is always that they're imagining uh, racist to be like, you know, some cartoon villain who, yeah, who, who simply can barely function in society because of all the Nazi tattoos that are over his face. And of course, those people are very rare, but that's not the normal form that I think racism takes in everyday life. That's the like that's yeah. the extreme form that like yeah. you don't see so much, and um, which yeah. isn't common. Yeah. And by the way, I have met 
literally that type with the swastika tattoos and a scar and get this a scar across their face very frightening meeting them in a dark alley but um you meet a lot of it just matt i'm just noticing i yeah i've lived a long life so you know um a few things have happened (laughs) along the way but i agree with you that they're really quite rare extraordinarily rare and what's is what's much more common is that sort of incidental behavior but also the kind of thing about not wanting to you know marry someone outside your ethnic group that kind of thing and you know i don't think those things are fine but i don't think that they're the same as the guy with the tattoos either so i think it's helpful not to catastrophize and so i essentially i think i'm agreeing with kendy even though i know that that's not how the broader discourse occurs at all that you shouldn't have those blanket categories to put together milder things with extreme things because it leads to all kinds of confusions yeah although i kind of think he's doing that to some extent but like i would also say that i think there's the famous quote that sam harris said that white nationalists and supremacists are like the fringe of the fringe when he was basically denigrating that the people are paying too much attention to this and it, it doesn't really have any purchase in modern American society. But obviously that's wrong, right? Trump was the president, Charlottesville happened, and there's been an increase in the tolerance for people making just disparaging remarks about Mexicans, people going back to shithole countries, so on, so forth. So I'm kind of, um, I'm like somewhere in the middle of, I do agree with you that the hardcore guys with the neo-Nazi symbols and stuff they are rare, but I think that we've seen when, you know, he was talking about voter suppression stuff, that is much more insidious and much more widespread. And it's it's the policy of the friggin' Republican Party. You know what I mean? One of the two parties in the US system. So the fact that it is openly promoting racist policies, I think it's wrong to view it as a fringe of a fringe issue, which I know, I know you're not saying that, Matt, but yeah, I think that some of the confusion around this topic gets completed because people are talking about different things. Yeah, I think I'm saying the same thing, which is that, look, there's just a wide variety of different things. There's the systemic things that... <laughs> there's a lot of different flavors of racism you can have. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to talk about. It's, it's a rich tapestry. But yeah, that, I mean, that, that systemic stuff of the Republican... I mean, I, you've probably got some clips that relate to this, Chris, but... If you take one of Kendi's points of view is that all policies can be categorized as being racist or anti-racist. Oh, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, when you were talking about the Republican Party, they're definitely going for some policies like voter suppression, which are... Kendi's racist. Yes. Kendi's systemic racist. (laughs) That's right. No, he doesn't uh, like systemic racist. Oh, sorry. Just Kendi racist. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so that's that sounds bad for him. But okay, as you say, we've got a lot of clips to get through, and we've got lots of interesting points he gets to. So the to finish off the Ezra Klein trilogy, here's the end of that conversation. I, it's kind of enjoyable because you can hear Ezra also like trying to get to the the objection and the point, right? And they they have a good exchange about it, but in the end, I think they end up still, you know, kind of at different places. So. Here's how that ends. I guess one question I have about that is, mm-hmm. is a problem here then that we need a new word? 
because racist carries a charge in this culture that very few other words do. Not that no other words do, but few other words do. And that it just, something that often seems to be happening in the racial conversation is there's a war between sort of new definitions of it that are much more expansive and trying to describe something societal and that's more like a description of an ecosystem or things that people face as opposed to things that are in people's hearts. Um, but it keeps running into the feeling people have that the word is, if not an insult, almost worse than that, a deep condemnation. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you, do we just need a new word? Should we have something else to say? So I, I would argue that we should not necessarily create a, a new word and we should understand where that political charge comes from. Uh, where that idea that when you call someone a racist, you're attacking them. You're saying who they are fundamentally as a person. You're, you're saying that they're a bad person. Uh, that idea, particularly in our context, is, is one of the ideas that white nationalists have been pushing, particularly over the last 15 years. They've been trying to essentially make this case, particularly to white people, uh, that when someone calls you racist, they're attacking you. Yeah, this is it's it's a bit it's a bit mind bending, isn't it, Chris? Um. Yeah, because they are. (laughs) Usually, they're not using Candy's definition. That's what I mean, right? He's flipping now to say like they're misunderstanding, but no, they aren't. Because most people, when they call someone a racist, they are attacking the person's character. Yeah, like let let me put it this way, Chris. I I didn't call my Indian friends racist when they told me about how they didn't want their sister to marry an American. And that's because they would have been deeply hurt <laughs> and offended by yeah. me doing I that. Like it, I don't think it would help them if you told them, well, like Candy said, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> that's a white nationalist talking point. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I mean, that's right. I mean, look, the social prohibitions and, 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 and stigma associated with racism is, is good, I think, right? Yeah. It, it, there should be a strong stigma there. And I'm trying to think of a similar example that carries the same kind of emotional weight. And the only thing I can come up with is, is like a, you know, a minor attracted person or something like that, Chris. Can you think of something that's maybe less... I don't know, like pedophiles and racists are, I mean, they're not the exact same, but they, you know, like they're, they're in the category of things you don't want to be. Yeah, that's right. They're in the category of things you do not want to be. <laughs> yeah. No, I was trying to think of a different example because that's pretty extreme, but it's a perfectly fine comparison, really. Like so you can say, to, to make the distinction to say, look, I'm just criticizing your behavior and the kinds of attitudes you have around being attracted to children. It's nothing against you personally. You know, this, uh, you could still be a good person. That doesn't really fly, does it? I mean, it doesn't work. You, when you say somebody is doing bad things and is and has bad motivations, then it's it's equivalent to saying that they're a bad person. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not exactly equivalent, but the, the inference is rather clear, and and it's not an insane one to draw. But I I'm going to play another clip to highlight that. So we are we are having issues, which I think many people have with the definitional aspects of Candy's position, right? And some of the things that it entails, they're just complicated. And I want to point out that he acknowledges that this can be an issue. So here's him talking about why we shouldn't use the term structural racism. You know, when you go into a barbershop or, you know, you go to a bus stop, um, you know, or you go into a church basement around people who may not have ever read a book on racism, intended a lecture, and you say, oh, yes, you know, 
America is experiencing systemic racism. And you ask them, well, what does that mean? Many people may not even be able to say that. Even college students, even some people who study it cannot coherently describe what that actually means, right? And, and so whenever we have terms that everyday people cannot understand, you know, we should think about different ways to explain. So that's why I use the term racist policies, because a racist policy, okay, people understand what a policy is, and then you're qualifying it with a racist policy. And then people can then think, start thinking about their lives and seeing those racist policies. And then they begin to see, okay, those policies are making up the structure. And so I want people to focus on not the structure. I want them to focus on really the veins that really make up the structure so that um, they can begin the process of undermining. This is the part that like feels contradictory to me, because if you're saying, well, we want to use the terms in the way that everyday people would intuitively grasp, like, I agree, racist policy is better than systemic racism. But the way he defines terms is not common usage. So it would be confusing to people if you just applied his schema. So he, yeah, it's just an inconsistent point. But he he clearly does seem to recognize that there's an issue with using terms in a way that people won't intuitively grasp. Yeah, agreed. So it's it's an inconsistency. Take that, <laughs> take that. <laughs> like, you know, like we highlight the inconsistencies of other people. So there's no reason not to. If there's one thing that I hate, it's inconsistency. Like you know, I don't like. I don't particularly. I'm not that fond of racism either. But it's inconsistencies really get it's, me yeah, yeah, that is the real. That's the real scourge of modern society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But. Um, so another thing that Candy gets criticized for, we'll stick on the criticism and then we'll go to a good point, is the one that you brought up about this binary, that everything can be put into these two bins, racist or anti-racist. And as we've just discussed, we're applying Candy's scheme, right? So racist is a descriptive term for an action or policy. So this is a thing focused directly at policies. So here's the interviewer describing this approach of Candy and a possible issue. And so you say that no policy is racially neutral. It's either racist or anti-racist. And as I thought about that, I, I sort of found myself wandering into lots of policies that I was like, well, I don't know if I can tell the difference. Like I just for fun, I, I opened up, I live in the state of Ohio. I looked up some of the recent bills in the state of Ohio and I was like this one. And again, it was exempt veterans disability severance pay from income tax. And I was like, well, I can't tell. And I know you don't know anything about that bill necessarily. And I know the devil is always in the details. Uh, but in general saying, okay, the severance pay that we paid veterans is not going to be taxed. Mm -hmm. We're going to exempt it from income tax. Mm -hmm. Does that seem to be an anti-racist policy or, or a racist policy? Because to me, I look at it and I go, well, it seems neutral. Yeah. Um, Do you want to hear his answer? Yeah, I do. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we, we have that. So severance. So when we're thinking about severance pay, we're thinking about something pay that can ultimately contribute to the wealth of a particular uh, person or even one's family, let's say, or even their just annual income, right? 
And so I think one way to assess whether that policy is indeed racist or anti-racist is we currently have a a growing racial wealth gap in, in the state of Ohio or even an income gap. So then the question becomes, is that bill, is that new measure growing that wealth gap or closing it? Is it growing the income gap between, on average, Black people and white people in the state of Ohio? Or is it closing it? What's, what's the impact of it? And I think that's how we can sort of determine the answer as to whether that policy is indeed racist or anti-racist. Yes, that's, mm, yeah. So th- this is a great example of Kendi's style, which you haven't really talked about, which is very unguru-like in the sense that he's very clear about what he is saying. Like we haven't, like e- even though his definitions are bespoke, shall we say, um, he's he's a good academic in, and unlike most of many of our other gurus in that he's pretty clear about what he's saying. My issue with this one is not that I don't understand it or it's unclear or whatever. It's just that the implications of it can be rather strange. So the implication is, is well, it's not an implication. He says it quite straightforwardly that you can classify all things as racist or anti-racist based on whether or not they have a net positive or negative um, equalizing effect in terms of outcomes for African-Americans versus racial disparities, racial disparities, shall we say. So that makes perfect logical sense. You can certainly do that. It may not be immediately obvious, but you could be an economic analyst and a social analyst and do your calculations. And I, I think you could figure that out for, for literally any policy, even if it seems to happen. Although some would be super tortured. Like imagine <clears throat> a policy which is about if you're allowed to keep grey the apes. <laughs> right and like you need to work out is that racist or anti-racist like i'm sure you can find a way yeah 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 so like whether or not you should be able to keep lions as pets and ride them around as like little horses then that's yeah that's it's not immediately obvious whether that it seems like animal welfare and exploitation of but like yeah. there's the thing right once you get the exploitation of other countries you can start to uh yeah Okay, but but look, let's let's put that aside. I take your point. I agree that there are some policies that just you know it's there is there is so close to being neutral. There's no point even doing the calculus, right? But a lot of government policy is based on economics and and social spending and stuff like that. So I think in most cases it'd be pretty straightforward to work out. But the the analogy that I could make is you you could apply the same categorization to other priorities. You could say, well, we can categorize every policy as to whether or not it's, it's socialist or anti-socialist based on whether or not it equalizes, um, you know, results in a more um, equal wealth and income distribution uh, for poor people as opposed to richer people, right? You could also do the same thing for gender, any number of other priorities one might have. In fact, we could classify any policy as being pro the environment or anti the environment based on whether or not, you know, it has a net impact um, on the environment. So, sure. I mean, you can do that, but I don't really, the, the problem is, is what's the, is that always helpful? I mean, you could factor that in, into your calculus on any given policy, but if you are categorizing things as, as racist or anti-racist, then what you're implying, I think, is that anti-racist policies are good and racist policies are bad, right? That's the implication. But Good job, Matt. Yeah, no, no, but that, that, that has to be spelt out because that's not true. Where are you going with this, Matt? <laughs> well, 
Well, there are many policies that have very little to do with race at all. They could be to, they could be focused on environmental regulations. They could be focused on whether or not people are allowed to ride around tigers as like little horses, right? Mm, but in that case, isn't that just saying that there's a third, I, I think there's more than a third category, but like that the binary is the problem yes. and not admitting that there can be things which, which are neutral or which are at best very tangentially related to that well, issue. Well, that, that's what I was trying to say, that the, their valence, according to that particular dimension, could be negligible relative to the positive impacts it's having across other dimensions, right? I, I, I thought you were going for the, there can be instances where the racist policy is socially good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but that's, but, but that's my point, Chris. According to, this is where Kendi's language is quite tricky, right? Because his formulation is logical. It makes sense. But I think the only way it makes sense is the way that we just described it, right? And that every policy has all kinds of implications across all kinds of dimensions of priority. However, in the language that he's using, which is is racist or anti-racist, the implication is that anything that is less than zero could be negative 0.001 or whatever on that particular dimension means it's a bad policy. Whereas, you know, it could be that a, a particular income tax or a, a change in environmental regulations or or some kind of policy has all kinds of positive benefits across and it, but it's always going to have a mixture of pros and cons across the various dimensions along which you evaluate it so it's actually not true according to his formulation that racist policies are always bad yeah right? because they, they could they could be racist but just just fall on the on the on the negative thing by just well, a smidge. Well, this, this gets to another point that he makes. And actually, by the way, just to note that he also speculates that a veteran tax, he does give an example where it could be anti-racist. For example, if black people are overrepresented amongst veterans, which he, you know, believes that they are. But but let's say let's say hypothetically that white people were overrepresented among veterans right and also hypothetically maybe veterans really do deserve some kind of benefits because they've been hard done by in various other ways right yeah then according to his formulation it would be a racist policy right yes that's a good point yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's what i'm trying that's what i'm trying to explain yes yeah it is and but like in general i think it isn't that complex i agree entirely with the view that you could take this perspective and better examine the contribution of policies to racist and anti-racist issues as as defined by Candy. And that this would be a valuable thing to do. I, I legitimately think it would be. But I think the issue is with the monomania of forcing everything through that lens and with arguing that there is nothing which would be not better understood by applying that to it. Well, well I, I think what you're saying is that there, that there are other dimensions with which to evaluate policies as well there's there's more than one thing that society is trying to optimize right in formulating policy yes and and binary as well in general we've we've seen this with like james Lindsay and stuff and i'm not drawing a parallel between the two i i i, I don't need this but i but just james Lindsay is just such a monumental asshole that it's unfair to compare anyone to him but in in any case uh, where, where, what was I talking about? Just his his assholeness just subsumed my vision for a second. So yeah, but there's the same problem about like you know forcing everything into a woke versus anti woke framework. Yes, you can do it, 
but Trump really is a terrible person and a threat regardless of whether you think he he has the right idea about critical race theory and its role in government training. There should be other issues that you're concerned with. Okay, maybe we have flogged that horse to death, but a point that follows on from that relates to discrimination and in particular the potential for discrimination to be good when it is in the form of anti-racist discrimination. But it starts out, again, the interviewer is trying to understand why Kendi has argued that being concerned about racial discrimination is something that we shouldn't be focused on. Okay, it's kind of a counterintuitive claim. So let's let's hear the interviewer describe the issue, and then we can hear how Kendi responds. Generally, I would have thought was a term that would be a positive term in the fight for racial equality, but you've described is not. Um, and it's the term racial discrimination. You've said racist power has basically commandeered that term since the 60s. So talk to me about why that term has become something that's not helpful in being anti-racist. Okay. So th- I think this is a good frame because there's another example that to some extent Candy is taking positions that appear counterintuitive, like racial discrimination is not something we should be concerned with, with an anti-racist agenda. And like the immediate action thought is like, why? Like, surely we do want to oppose that. And here's his answer. Within the actual law, there were language that specified the ways in which, let's say, Black people should or could be discriminated against. And so by the 1960s, when some of those laws were deemed unconstitutional or were disallowed for use, the proposed solution to that was for laws to not have any racial language in them, right? The conception was that laws that have racial language in them discriminate, and then laws that don't apparently are neutral or race neutral. And so that's then what allowed people who oppose affirmative action to make the case that affirmative action policies were a form of discrimination against white people, and thereby they were racist, and thereby they were not allowing America to uh, achieve its goals of equality, and thereby they should be eliminated. Hmm. So I'm not surprised to hear Kendi take that position because it's very much along the lines of being supportive of affirmative action and against the idea of being colorblind and totally neutral, which is kind of that sort of liberal standard position. And that's something that people more on the progressive activist side are very much against and in favor of, um, I guess, active measures. And he's calling it um, discrimination in order to equalize outcomes, I suppose, to, to, to promote equity amongst racial groups mm. well, well said man. i said it to, i said it to, there, there, there was a, there was a good idea there struggling to get out yeah but. well let, let me let me help you along because i think he does a good job how about how about you, you you say you say it again but say it well better. i think he says it better than you or me with some 
examples. It gives two analogies. And, you know, we've talked about the guru way with metaphors and analogies. And I agree with you that Candy doesn't rely on that so much, like the flowery metaphor. He's not this figure like Eric Weinstein or Jordan Peterson. His, his analogies are actually helpful. Yeah. And um, <laughs> here's one of them. For instance, you have an under-resourced school, and that school has far and away less resources than, let's say, and it's majority black than a majority white school down the road. And you want to go about ensuring that the two schools have a relatively equal amount of resources. You know, and one school is getting, I'm just throwing a numbers out there, you know, has a $5 million annual budget and the other has a $2 million annual budget. You can then, okay, let's up that. 2 million annual budget to 5 million. But then folks at that white school will be like, you're discriminating against us <laughs> because you're not giving us money too. Like, and, and that's essentially the call of reverse discrimination. So I think this is actually a very popular culture war topic at the minute. The progressive view is that because of historical discrimination, that we do, we do need affirmative discrimination in order to undo the imbalance that exists and we won't get there by just treating everyone equal because people are not starting from the same place and this leads to you know kamala harris's cartoon which gets everyone upset and then talking about whether they're focusing on the outcomes have to be the same and like how much coercion is in it and so on but i i think the way that he presents it here is actually a good illustration where you're saying there's a school where the funding is less than another school for discriminatory historical reasons or social reasons. And if you go to increase the funding, that people will say, well, why are they getting the funding and not this? It would be fairer to just give everybody the same funding, but that would just recreate the inequalities. But I think in some part, this is a fundamental distinction in the worldview of liberals and conservatives. And of course, there's you know other points on the spectrum, but whether the differences are caused by the pre-existing conditions and structural realities or whether they are the instantiation of differences in ability and merit. And now, when they're tied to racial categories, I think that becomes a very, very controversial topic for a good reason. Yeah. Because, like, what, what are you saying there? But, but like, more broadly, that I'm is just... In part, it's a distinction between liberals and conservatives. Yeah, I guess so. I always find it's helpful to just take an um, an example that's structurally similar but doesn't involve race. So I can remember a couple of years ago, my daughter received uh, a scholarship like a, um, at, at school, just a, just a little scholarship. There was some little competition involved, um, a maths competition, and then that paid for her to go to Brisbane, the capital city of our state, spend a week at, at the university there and do all of these nice activities and, and so on. Now, that scholarship, it was partly determined on merit. She's good at maths, but it was also targeted specifically at regional areas that had you know, lower socioeconomic outcomes. People that were, in terms of the geographic area, the geographic category, it was defined as students who were deprived and not as privileged as the people in the city. And so I doubt my daughter would have received the scholarship otherwise. So, so that's one categorization. And I don't think many people have issues with that. For instance, targeting a particular town or a particular suburb that is 
you know, in terrible straits is, is really doing badly and actually spending some money at the state or federal level in order to rectify that situation and help the people there. So I guess it only becomes controversial when those measures are targeted, you know, according to, to you know, an identity category. And it could be race or, or it could be gender as well. Am I right? And I guess there are some liberals who would argue that that kind of discrimination is inherently a bad approach, that a better way to target such things would be to target the whatever it is, the scholarship, the extra funding, the extra opportunities, whatever, being targeted at the people who fall below some threshold of need, and it it could be defined in um, terms of economics or geographic areas that are deprived or however you want to um, define it. And they would argue that that kind of net would naturally pick up a large proportion of the like if it was the case that women or say say girls were dis, were disadvantaged in a particular thing or um, non-white people were particularly prone to being economically disadvantaged or go to a um, underfunded school then they would argue that measures to fund underfunded schools or poorer areas would naturally pick up those identity categories so it avoids the discrimination so I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I don't have a strong take on it, I guess. I don't have a strong feeling about it. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I don't claim to have, I haven't looked into sociological models of which kind of policies work and don't and the effects of them. Like, I don't feel well informed enough to have a strong opinion on what works in terms of interventions. But I, I do agree there's scope for disagreement on the way to alleviate it that doesn't automatically come down to you're either racist or anti-racist, right? Like I, I think there's, there's, there's a broader spectrum. Yeah, I'd actually agree. In fact, I'd, I'd put it like this. I'd say I, I think you could argue for that neutral, you know, identity neutral position that I described and not be like a horrible, reactionary, heartless person. But on the other hand, you could argue for measures that are targeted, for instance, at in Indigenous communities specifically, mm. without being a crazy woke person either. Like that makes a, that can make a lot of sense as well. Yeah. So I, I think I, I think it's yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's a discussion point where one has to draw a sharp line between one side is terrible and one the other side of the argument is obviously right. Yeah. I mean, I think it all depends on where you're drawing the lines of the sides it's kind of like if we take the voter suppression issue which i know is like a slightly different topic but there are people who will say well one side is that we should have stricter regulations about voter registration and the other side is that we should make it more lax and they both have good points and i feel that that is a false equivalence because one is promoting a disenfranchisement and the other is encouraging greater franchisement but like we we have metrics where we know that there isn't this problem of vast voter fraud Um, and we know conversely that enfranchising people will allow people from minority communities to vote and now i'm not saying that there isn't political calculations in there but it would be wrong to frame that as there's 
two sides and they both have, you know, legitimate points from my perspective. No, no, look, I, I agree with you there. But, you know, important to note the the obvious solution to that is to not have these highly restrictive identification requirements across the board, right? Yeah, just everyone votes. Yeah, like essentially an Australian type system, right? Where ev- everyone votes, right? So <laughs> the solution is Australia. <laughs> Australia is the best, right? Australia is the best. Just get used to it. But my point is, is that you actually can solve that problem without actually targeting something specifically at some racial category yeah you just 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 stop doing the stupid policy yeah and um um do um implement a policy which that makes it easier for everybody to vote yes so i mean i'm to be clear i'm not arguing for that sort of um colorblind alternative versus the affirmative action one i can see i can think of examples particularly disadvantaged indigenous communities which which need targeted assistance where i'm fully in favor of whatever you want to call it non-colorblind policy right policy that's deliberately designed to do a particular positive discrimination affirmative action yeah yeah call, call it what you like um i guess look what are the flash i'm trying to think of the people who would strongly disagree with Kendi, I suppose they would they would cite examples of, you know, where companies are hiring specifically for people of particular. Yeah, I mean, like I think the obvious example is probably things like you know the recent cases at the universities in America that they're discriminating against Asian Americans because of the overrepresentation of that group in like Ivy League colleges or I, I don't know the exact thing, but but it is clear that there's issues there, right? That the calculus isn't always so simple to do. And there, there can be essentially racial groups or ethnic groups or social groups, not, not just along racial lines, where there's conflicting interests and not purely in terms of the white groups that are benefiting. And I think that does end up with like some complex situations where you have people debating about whether... Jewish people are white passing or Asian Americans should be not classed in with people of color. And uh, I think those issues can get overblown in the culture wars, but there's legitimate complications there. And you see people making various strong claims online and people reacting badly against it and so on. And I, I think that it isn't so obvious that there's just a simple solution that would satisfy all groups and would be necessarily the best policy that we everybody could sign on to Mm. anyway so getting back to kendi i mean i'm trying to remember the clip now let me cue up a clip where kendi who is somebody that's fought about these issues in great detail (laughs) is talking about them yeah maybe that will help us so here's him talking about what inequity between groups means despite the differences in which people look, despite different cultures and ethnic groups, we're all on the same level. We're, we're all equal. I mean, and if there are disparities, they, they must be the result of, of racist policies because there's nothing wrong with, with groups of people. So this is interesting to me because there's a criticism that the likes of Jordan Peterson and, and various conservatives level, which is that where liberals detect inequity, they only have a single answer, that it has to be discrimination or, or some form of unfairness. And this is like the, the automatic answer, so there can't be any other explanation. And 
Candy does there seem to be leaning into justifying that position. And I'm not talking about that the alternative is that there are genetic racial difference between groups which explain the differences, right? But he he's quite strongly ruling out like cultural factors or like it, it basically is discrimination or you, or it's racism. That's the two possibilities that he's yeah. highlighting. Yeah, I think the other the other thing there is um historical just the historical history. I think he would include that like he is factoring that in as that can be the explanation for why those policies exist. But okay, so like an example I can think of which relates to my own experience and is easier to think about. In Northern Ireland, Catholics were discriminated against, right? And there there was a conflict in the Protestant and Catholic communities there. And if you try to understand the differences and the, the situation there without understanding the, the disparities and the issues of civil rights, you will have an incomplete picture. However, from my perspective, if you try to solve the issue of the troubles and the violence in Northern Ireland, and you don't take into account the cultural factors, which is like support for paramilitaries, the bigotry, in the Catholic community towards Protestants and yeah, like the glorification of the IRA and so on. These kind of cultural factors, which, which were at play and an anti-elitism that also, you know, has impacts on not only the positions that people are allowed to occupy, but the ones that they culturally value and so on. Like, I think that it is okay to say that where there are structural differences and where there's discrimination, there can be other factors and there can be like internal cultural values which can which can cause and contribute to disparities. And like I'm I'm not so sure that we should automatically assume that any difference observed must be due to structural inequality. Or or policy. Policy. Or, or policy, yes. Like, I think cultural values could could generate it. Now, whether they do and whether that can also be used as an attack line to target and has been used as an attack line to target communities like the black population in America. It's, it's definitely true. So, again, it's like this very messy area to go into. But I, I feel like Candy is endorsing the position that like Peterson and stuff yeah. present and then other people say, well, that's a straw man that we don't do that. Yeah. Okay. So I take what you're saying is Kendi is saying that when you observe um, a mean difference between, between groups, then, well, we, he says that we, we know that there are, there are no strong biological reasons why the people in these two different groups should be doing differently. Sure. And therefore it must be a result of policy. And if I hear what you're saying correctly, you're just pointing out that there are other things <laughs> that feed into that as well, which which aren't policy. It's kind of a, um, historical accidents. Even it may not have even been historical policy. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of examples in my part of the world too, and I'm thinking again of the area that I live, which is rural Queensland, which is one of the widest areas in Australia. And if you compare that in terms of just the levels of education, the levels of 
um, uh, like almost every social outcome you can imagine, it's it's really not great in rural Queensland, right? Australia, look, the rest of Australia looks down on Queensland a little bit. Now, if you compare that to say uh, Melbourne, which is a, a fantastic town, you can get great coffee there, excellent restaurants. It's it's probably the most diverse place in Australia um, ethnically. They're doing a hell of a lot better on every metric you care to name, and. The reasons for that are all very interesting, but I'm pretty sure it's not due to a policy that's discriminated against uh, people in mm. rural Queensland or, or white people, right? There are historical and economic... Well, environmental factors as well. Environmental forces, all kinds of things going on um, that lead to that. And, you know, policy, it could well be the Australian federal policy has, this is what a lot of people in regional Queensland think, that it, that it disregards people living out here and doesn't value them and so on. They, they're quite resentful about the fact. It, it could well be the policy feeds into it as well, but uh, I don't. I think primarily actually it's more history. And so maybe I was too quick to respond because like I agree, that's, that's kind of what I mean, like historical factors, but not necessarily the historical discriminatory factors between groups. It can be a whole bunch of things that might exacerbate that some groups are favored over others, but that they can be just geographical things or so on. But also cultural, Chris. I mean, one of the things that is really apparent in the area that I live is that the the local people here, who again, I emphasize are, are white Australians, they they just they're usually multi, like, you know, like more than 50% of Australians are first or generation immigrants. But people that I'm thinking of are like third generation or so. And one of the things you notice about the culture is that they don't value education and they will often get married very young. You know, it's, it's kind of like the stereotypes of the American deep South, I suppose, uh, how true they are. But, you know, like cult- culture does feed into it and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with with the people. And there, there can be historical reasons for cultural, exactly, right? Yeah. But again, you're chicken and egging, and not you. I mean, in general, the interrelationship of culture and historical circumstances is interact. Yeah, exactly. It's a yin-yang type scenario. Yes, and there's a point where, actually, I think it's in the Ezra Klein interview where Ezra brings that up. I think one question somebody would have is, why can't it be both and? Like, why can't there be some differences in cultures or geographies that people come from or whatever it might be, and also that there is racist policy? What makes you certain that it is all one as opposed to some of one and some of the other? Well, I actually do think there's there's racialized difference. And so, obviously, geneticists have found that uh, there's a such thing as ethnic ancestry. And, of course, each ethnic group has been racialized. Of course, to a large extent, those ethnic groups practice different cultures, But at the same time, there's no biological difference, you know, via race. There's no behavioral difference. In other words, across cultures, people love, people lazy, people hate, people laugh. They just do it in different ways. But ultimately, I think more specifically to your your point, just because there's difference, cultural and even ethnic, doesn't mean it's better or worse or doesn't mean it's explaining away racial inequity because fundamentally we never have received that evidence Mm. yeah look i'm probably putting words in kendi's mouth here but i think from his point of view the things that we were mentioning history and culture and geography or whatever they're all still unfair you know that like 
and I'm going to stick with the Australian example to keep it out of the American context, but I think he would say, look, yes, you can give me lots of explanations for why a kid growing up in the country here is going to get is going to have a bad education and not earn very much money and just be essentially marginalized in various ways and you could say it's it's all complicated and due to history and and so on but ultimately um if if that person had been born in uh, metropolitan melbourne they'd be doing a lot better statistically speaking and that's unfair so yeah like I, i i don't think that's a crazy point of view I'm not really sure what my take would be. What do you think? Well, so I think Candy, in a lot of respects, I think he's just a very strong left-wing progressive person, right? Arguing for those perspectives. And that entails a very strong strain of cultural relativism and also a very strong skepticism about things related to biological inheritance, even within families, let, let me let me play a clip to just to illustrate what I'm talking about. And and you know I'm a I'm a new father and I have a three year old and and I like to imagine that her behavioral characteristics that I sort of passed that to her genetically right as many parents do even though we have no evidence for that and we certainly don't have any evidence for that at a group level. In other words, if you're German, you're going to behave this way, or if you're Nigerian, you're going to behave this way, or if you're African-American, you're going to behave this way. And it's easy for us to state that, yes, races behave this way, and that is the reason why they have more, because they are more or because they are less. It's And that just, it, it, it simply explains the world, it explains the inequality, and like you said, we don't have to do anything. Yeah, so I agree with his point there that you know we don't have evidence for like a german phenotype and especially not a racial one across the socially constructed vast amalgamation of things which get lumped in under like black or asian and and so on that point he's right but i do think that isn't the only option when you're talking about cultural differences that it derives Mm. from that ground like I live in Japan. I'm originally from Northern Ireland. There's very clear social differences here, cultural values that are different. And whereas he said it doesn't lead to behavioral differences, it does. There are clear behavioral differences in what's expected in the social relationships that people form. And yes, fundamentally, we're all people. We're all humans. We all eat and love and laugh and like... And it's wrong, I, I should go about saying that pu- putting people into racial hierarchies is just an injustice, a moral injustice against humanity. But I think that you don't need to do that in order to acknowledge that cultures differ, that the values that they inculcate can be different. And this can lead to like societies which value different things. Like, you know, I don't want to, there's, there's plenty of nice things about Japan like tons but for example the position of women in Japanese society like on cross-country metrics looking at gender disparity in the treatment of women Japan does terrible compared to most developed countries and that's related to cultural values and it isn't saying that there's something inherent to like Japanese biologically that they would do that but not acknowledging that the system, like the cultural system is different and that it can lead to outcomes which are indeed, yes, worse or better. I think that goes too far into like the 
extreme of cultural relativism. And I, I don't think allowing for that entails that you have to bring in essentialized racial differences. Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, I agree with Kendi that uh, that there's no evidence at a group or race level of biological differences in behavior. Um, but I think there's a lot of good evidence for at, at an individual level yeah, in terms of in terms of essentially children being somewhat predisposed to be like their parents is 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 pretty strong, um, but that's kind of tangential to his main point. I think it just is this more illustrative of the point you're making that he's quite strong, uh, blank slatist. I suppose would be um, the phrase. Yes, but but actually he does have this part. I find it really interesting because he's often presented as a that kind of thing that he's just focusing on a blank slate approach to human genetics and racial characteristics and stuff but like listen to this description of genetic differences between groups and ethnicities and and see what you think because i i thought it's it's like completely spot on for the better part of modern era humans have thought that the races were biologically distinct, that genetically black people were distinct from white people, and therefore black people had black blood and white people had white blood, and and there were black diseases and white diseases. And these genetic distinctions then led to genetic predispositions to behavior, positive and negative. And fundamentally, Geneticists have now found, of course, that at a genetic level, we're pretty much the same. But there is genetic variation, and actually the the vast majority of that genetic variation exists in Africa, which means that people in West Africa are actually more genetically similar to people in Western Europe than they are to people in East Africa. So this idea of this sort of genetic black person just doesn't exist. However, there is ethnic ancestry that are called populations by geneticists that are distinct. But can you give it an an example of like ethnicities versus races, just because this may not be as familiar to people. So to give an example, the Yoruba of Nigeria could be considered an ethnic group um, or the Irish of Ireland could be considered an ethnic group. Ashkenazi Jews. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Meaning that their genetic profile, the people who have that ancestry, their genetic profile is is, is similar, is the same, and thereby going to be somewhat distinct from people in other sort of regions that may be close by. But it's going to be more similar because in a way, you know, that you have sort of genetic ranges across the world. So in other words, if your group is close to another group's origin, you're probably going to have a similar genetic makeup. I, I just felt that's important because the way I see him presented is as if he would deny the reality of like population differences between ethnic groups. And he seems completely fine with it. And I think in general, this is a problem that people often have that they assume when people are talking about race as being a social construct, that it's contradictory to say there are population differences and it isn't. Yeah. 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 No, that's a very good point. And probably that the kind of mistake that people who are opponents of Kendi would make in just um, making those assumptions. I, I guess it was just that it was probably just an offhand comment from him really, which is that there are no behavioral or correspondences that the individual inherited at all, which is not, I mean, yeah. No. So actually there's a last clip, Matt, for this 
part where Ezra asks him about that and makes the point you did, but you do inherit some things from parents, right? But what I, what I was trying to sort of get at is just because we have similar genetic makeups, what still has not been proven is that a particular sort of ethnic genetic profile has a predisposition to positive or negative behaviors. And that's what people have also sort of began to make a case about when even that evidence doesn't exist. And so what we can imagine is simultaneously biological sameness and ethnic difference while simultaneously saying that difference only means difference. It doesn't mean anything more than that. Similarly with culture and behavior. We can imagine behavioral sameness. And what that means to me is you take any behavioral trait, and I mentioned a few earlier, laziness, happiness, love, hate, hard work. All of those behavioral traits exist in every culture on earth. They just exude themselves differently. And so that's how we can understand everyone loves. (laughs) Everyone's the same as a result of love, but people love differently based on different cultures. And we should not be judging how people love in another culture from the way we love in our own. That was slightly different point. It was the cultural relativism point, but that's quite strong description of the standard cultural relativist view. Yeah, that's right. You know, he chose examples like love and hard work and so on, which I, I think he's right. You, you see versions of, of, of more basic traits in every single culture. But to take your Japan example, there's definitely some traits that are very highly apparent in Japan compared to other countries. And some of them uh, are bad, but some of them are, are good and are at least partly responsible, I guess, for um, certain social outcomes and economic outcomes in Japan. Yeah. Like, I, I think fundamentally, most liberal minded people would agree. We don't want to arrange societies into a hierarchy of these societies are good because they're economically developed. On the other hand, I think it is okay to say societies that enable more rights for women are preferable to those which restrict rights for women or societies which allow freedom of religion are preferable for those that enforce theocracy with severe punishment for leaving your religion of birth. Yeah. But look, I mean, there are cultural differences that have important outcomes and there are often pros and cons associated with each of them. Like, you know, one of the most common and big ones that you know about, Chris, is that idea of collectivism versus individualism, right? And that's a that's a double-edged sword. So you have a very collective culture of Japan. You've got a highly individualist culture in the United States. You've got Australia, which is actually somewhere in between. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Like, quite distinct material advantages. On one hand, the sort of um, conformity uh, in Japan leads to a a great deal of social cohesion, arguably lower crime rates and and many pro-social things at work that leads to productivity. On the other hand, I think a lot of people recognize that highly individualist culture in the United States promotes a lot of innovation, a lot of risk-taking, a a lot of competition, which is also uh, a good outcome. So, you know, I, I... I'm with you. I certainly at a basic trait level, like I'm a psychologist, our fundamental assumption is that personality traits are basically universal um, and they vary among individuals, but you're going to have people who are, say, highly extroverted and highly introverted in every single country. But those are very base level traits. When you get to 
um, more complicated ones, like the degree to which conformity or religious toleration was your example, then these are very complicated things that aren't so primal, if you like. And, you know, it's not about ranking cultures and saying, oh, this, this this is good and that one's bad. It's just saying they lead to outcomes which can be quite important in a material way. In a annoying contrarian way, I will mention I'm published on the collectivism, individualism differences, specifically in uh, East Asia. Uh, how they, uh, it, it, has it been debunked, has it? Don't tell me it's been debunked. It, it's, it's, would you believe, Matt, it's more complicated than... Oh, uh, more, more, uh, com- more complicated than I understand. Is that is that what you're saying, Chris? Yeah. Just, it, yeah. The fundamental <laughs> argument is that collectivists or individualists are no less concerned with groups than collectivists. They're, they're all concerned with groups and that in East Asia, it's intra-group collectivism where people don't lose themselves in groups. They care very much about their positionality within groups and the relationships, like which isn't the image. The image is that people lose their identity and their group identity. Oh, yeah, right. No, I wasn't thinking that. I was. I, I had the sophisticated version in my mind, Chris, the whole time. That's sure, definitely... yeah, sure. I, I know, I know, Matt. But, uh, look, um... I, I know what goes on in Japanese companies and amongst uh, Japanese friendship circles, amongst same others, for instance. And yes, there's an awful lot of uh, individualistic competition going in, but there's a, definitely a facade of <laughs> a facade of uh, everybody agreeing and uh, so on. Yeah, so the clip I wanted to play before illustrated better why Candy has an issue with people focusing on inheritance. And it again talks to a characteristic which maybe some people disparage amongst the progressive set, a tendency towards potential catastrophizing or slippery slopiness. They don't call it slippery slopiness. But let me play it and we'll see the road that it takes us from uh, acknowledging the role of inheritance in the outcome of children. But there is some evidence that we pass individually our genetic and then and, and as such behavioral uh, inclinations onto kids to some degree. My son is a lot chiller than I am and than I was, <laughs> but um, but it's there, right? Well, I mean, when I, when I say there's no evidence, meaning it's not concrete. Right. Right. And so there's theories. There's some evidence to justify that that theories. But that's just a to me, it's, it's such a powerful statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I feel like there are certain things that should not be said until we have absolute evidence that proves it. Because obviously, if 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 we are just sort of theorizing or talking about or preliminarily saying it, that's a very powerful idea because then we're going to say, oh, you know, all those smart people, <laughs> they're going to give birth to smart kids. And, you know, then it's going to lead to eugenics. Right. And and so I think it's a very dangerous slope to go down. Mm. Yeah, that's it's revealing, isn't it? And it's uh, look, I, it's it's very understandable why Kendi and people who would be aligned with Kendi are opposed to those things. First of all, opposed to any idea of saying that material outcomes are, say, the product of culture or even just historical accident, and also to be against the idea that there's some sort of biological basis to outcomes as well. Now, I completely understand that and I appreciate it, especially at the group level. As as he said, at the group level, there's absolutely no reason to think that there's any biological reason for group level differences. So I sympathize because I know that that's, that's the conservative reactionary argument is that nothing should be done to remediate the inequities that currently exist 
because their argument is is that it's due to these things that aren't our responsibility, right? And, and what Kendi wants to do is say, hey, it is your responsibility. These inequitable mm-hmm. outcomes are or our responsibility to fix. And that's the thing yes. I completely agree with him on that. First of all, about the biology, that's a no-brainer, right? That's, that's, that's not a valid reason, right? That's only racists who say that, okay? But the more interesting ones is, is about cultural differences and, and history. And I would say that it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be the outcome of deliberate policy or racist policy, even historical racist policy. It could just be a historical accident that, that led to a particular era in the um, Appalachians or a particular area that has led to very poor outcomes. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It, it's still not good. And policy should be aimed to rectify that. So I, I suppose, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd just say to him that you don't need to, like, I understand the reason, the political reason to lay everything at the feet of policy caused this. And now in the United States, obviously, policy did cause it. Historical policy and present policy absolutely did cause it, and in Australia too, for that matter, to, to a significant degree, shall we say. He's wanting to disregard other causes of it too, but I would say there's no need to because it's a good idea to rectify them anyway. Yeah, and look, I'm going to play some clips. Candy saying things which I've heard you say many times. So this, this should be music to your ears. You know, for instance, when it comes to violent crime, we know, for instance, that typically neighborhoods with higher levels of violent crime tend to have higher levels of poverty and unemployment. And so, but we can't see those macro issues of poverty and unemployment for whatever reason as the cause of that violent crime because we're only looking at those individual people, right? And we're only focused and outraged about the acts of those individual people. And certainly, you know, anytime anyone harms another person, we should be outraged. But we should also realize that these aren't actually dangerous black neighborhoods because if if somehow it was the blackness of the people that was behind the violent crime, then all black neighborhoods no matter the levels of poverty and unemployment, would have the same levels of violent crime. But it just so happens that higher income black neighborhoods tend to have lower levels, far lower levels of violent crime than extremely impoverished black neighborhoods. So this is pointing out structural factors which are relevant, that poverty and deprivation should be considered and not just like the character failures of the individual. And I think we would both agree with that. And he he actually makes the point that he doesn't want to focus on it as purely a racial issue. So this this is him talking a little bit more about the same sort of theme. It means is we actually do have dangerous unemployed neighborhoods. We have dangerous impoverished neighborhoods, but then that changes the calculations in terms of what is the deficiency. Yeah. You know, it's not the solution isn't we need to work out some way to to alleviate black people's genetic inferiority that makes them create these these terrible places to live like no we we need systems that are addressing poverty and deprivation and i don't find much to disagree with there but it's kind of predictable right because like we are liberal people so that would be the kind of explanation that we would favor on like this structural factors and deprivation and that these should be resolved through policies. So are we just saying that the liberal thing is right? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, like I think I think it's self-evidently true what he's saying that when 
you look at, say, high levels of crime or high levels of social dysfunction generally, there could well be a correlation with race. But it's not it's not the race that's the <laughs> that's that's the problem. It's not it's not it's not the skin's color that's causing it. It's 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 a combination of of historical policies, present policies, and even things that we we're referring to the imp- impact of culture and subculture. To to a large degree, those things are downstream of history. They, I'd, I'd say one hundred percent, they are fully downstream of history. Right, a, a history that's been affected by policy along the way so it seems appropriate to me to look to policies to steer things in a better direction to to rectify them i've got one last clip that i think will echo that and just show how much you're on the same page with candy for all our disagreements here's points where we converge you have many americans who it's easy for them for instance to blame those individual people who are engaged in violent crime in a neighborhood that's perceived as dangerous and and, and, and violent. It's a little bit harder. And, you know, you see those people and it's easy to blame those people and it's easy to say those people are violent and it's easy to say then community is violent. It's much harder to, to take a step back and and start to think about, okay, what potential policies are affecting that community that could be leading to those higher levels of violent crime. So, you know, Jordan Peterson yeah. would hate this. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, as you say, Chris, when viewed from, I guess, the right angle, then I am so on board with Kendi. It's, it's not funny. And I, I think you probably are too. And if I've got a bit of a hot take here, which is, it seems to me at least part of the reason why people like Kendi is so controversial in the United States is that in the United States, they really have uh, an abhorrent, an abhorrence of the idea that anything apart from your individual gumption and stick to itness and moral character determines what happens in your life, right? It's particularly strong on the right wing, on conservatives, mm-hmm. but even liberals too um, uh, tend, tend to favor kind of an individualistic way of thinking about things and and even in addressing injustice often there's this kind of return to sort of things at an individual level but for someone like me that seems thoroughly mistaken to that there are so many influences on what causes a particular person to be successful and happy and and well balanced and and so on and it's got an awful lot to do with the, um, how lucky you were in, in terms of the how well off the family was that you were born into, the environment that you grew up in, your friendship networks, all of these things, they all feed in to, to affect um, how, how your life turns out. And I think, I think Americans just don't like to think about their own destiny being the outcome of these bigger forces so uh, through a particular lens kendi isn't talking about race at all you know <laughs> <That's a hard laughs> thing. Yeah. okay i mean okay stick with me stick with me okay on one level yes he is talking about race chris but on on, on a deeper level i think mean, he's talking about disadvantaged neighborhoods you know what i mean and all kinds of other deprivations that can affect everybody to to one degree or another 
right? Or, or people are free of them to one degree or another. And it, it happens that in the United States, those things are highly correlated with your racial identity yeah, and, and in um, Australia too, especially with respect to Indigenous people. Fortunately, with respect to other racial categories, it's not so much the case. And so I think that racial lens is less prevalent here. But in Australia, it feels that everyone is very comfortable with the idea that people are affected by their circumstances and we want to take actions uh, at a societal level to give everybody a fair go. Yeah, there, there is the the cult of individualism in America. You know, it has its good and its, its bad points and the libertarian ethos is certainly strong in that country. But I can get on board with your hot take, but only to a certain degree because I think he really, he is talking about these broader things, but like it's very, very fixated on Reyes as the key character at this moment based on the historical circumstance like yeah no i i look i agree obviously that's the main thing he's concerned with in terms of equalizing <laughs> that but, it, but you're not you're i'm not, not saying i'm not saying the man who wrote anti-racist baby is not concerned with race right but <laughs> yes. um, what i am saying is that when you actually look at his sort of theoretical machinery his you know intellectual framework that goes into explaining those dis- racial discrepancies and differences and how to ameliorate them. It's, it's standard, it's standard socialism. W- would you agree? I would agree, but that actually takes me to one of the last points before we get to our wrap ups, unless, unless you have more to say, in which case just like continue on, but the, uh, <laughs> so one of the criticisms of candy that we will be complaining about if we don't address And he doesn't talk about it in these talks that we looked at. But I think he is like a little bit prone to Twittering hot takes and that kind of thing. But there's there's a lot of people who are on the opposing front for him. him, John McWhorter, for example, has not been covering himself with glory on Twitter recently. But so he has suggested that there should be an amendment to the U.S. Constitution and that they should establish... A department of anti-racism, as he describes it, comprised of formally trained experts on racism and no political appointees. DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequality, monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces, and monitor public officials for expression of racist ideas. Now, uh, People did highlight this idea, and their argument is that this is close to describing a totalitarian apparatus that is above all democratic areas of the state, which has a positive goal, yes, but you know, lots of things which end up totalitarian carry within them fundamental. Their idea is good. It's the execution that is the problem, and if you have a a department which is above all regulations can police what people are thinking and has the ability. It doesn't sound it doesn't sound great, does it? I mean, no. And you know, the the people pointing this out said if this was a conservative writer who was arguing for something similar related to I don't know, like valuing American traditionalism or something, people would very quickly say that's fascism or that's 
close to fascism. And I don't think that Kendi, like, I don't think that's a fair thing because I don't think he's going to instigate like an anti-racist fascist state if he had the choice. I think it's more, this is my take and this might be me, you know, being overly kind, but that that's just like a bad suggestion of an academic who is like fixating on policy and is thinking of an impractical wonky solution that that could have really negative consequences if it actually came to pass. And like, so I think it's partly just a hot take that deserves criticism, yes, but that I think fundamentally is hard. You know, it's in the right place. Yeah. And I know that yeah. doesn't necessarily matter because most people think that they're doing the right thing. But I just want to play one clip before I get your feedback where he's asked about like this setting up of a policy center at the university. And I think this highlights to me more that that hot take stands in contradiction to the way that he responds here. And and you formed a center, which the whole goal was to bring together policy people to really look at what policies are racist, what policies are not, and to try and change the the sort of policy that gets enacted. Well, certainly. I mean, you know, we've founded the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, and, and, and certainly, you know, one of our goals will be to allow research to bear on sort of policies that are indeed maintaining or or growing racial inequity and justice. So we then can see what policies need to be eliminated from our body politic. Yeah, as you say, Chris, that's a lot milder version of the hot take that you read out before. So I tend to agree with you that it's more of a um, a wonky policy suggestion by an academic, and he, I would say, phrased it in an inadvisable way. But the way he described it there is pretty innocuous. The way I read it was he pretty much hedges that look, we are gonna we'll do research that will speak to policies and we'll give advice. But what he's not saying is we'll establish a constitutional thing that and everybody needs to. To me, it just sounded like an academic. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like we've managed to run long for our final episode. We've touched on all the hot button topics that will get us cancelled. We've disparaged a black academic for at least two and a half hours by the time it's edited down. This is our zenith. And and look, I fully anticipate that some people will say, well, but you're too nice to him in a way that you aren't to like some of the folks that you don't agree with in terms of their politics. And to that, I would say that's probably true to some extent. But I think we did highlight that, you know, my issues with him primarily are that he's applying these bespoke definitions and occasionally offering hot takes, but that actually the way he talks in general, it isn't like a super hyperbolic way. It's just applying his definitions. And it speaks to me as an academic as something that I've seen many times. And I sometimes strongly disagree with academics when they're using, you know, definitions that I don't agree with. But I think that it would be wrong to present him as like, well, this is the liberal version of Scott Adams or the liberal version of an Eric Weinstein. 
no, he like he doesn't strike me as super grandiose or like fundamentally sinister. <laughs> he he strikes me as as someone who you can disagree with the various claims that he has, but he you know he has a policy agenda. He's a bit wonkyish and. His arguments about like how we should apply the logic of racism, um, I'm less compelled by. But the underlying logic that we need to be concerned about not just people who are slavering racists and that people can, in their actions, be inconsistent and support racist policies without harboring deep animus towards people from other racial categories. Yeah, that's all. That's all good. So like, I think he's fine for us to cover as a guru. He definitely falls within that sphere, but he wasn't as bad as I was expecting him to be from like the culture war stuff. I, I'd be curious to read one of his books and see if he fleshes things out better or if there's more hot take stuff in it. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, I largely agree with all that, Chris. So focusing on the stylistic stuff to begin with, he's... He's not guruish at all. He sounds like an academic and he's very clear and precise. And as you say, he doesn't just doesn't do the guru things. If you disagree with him, then it's because you disagree with him. It's not because he's, you know, spinning things out of whole cloth. He's just, he's got a particular, um, he's advocating for a particular position and he explains himself very clearly. Um, we criticized a few things and I, I want to revisit them before I get to the sort of final degree to which I agree with him or not. Cause I think it's, it's, it's helpful because I, I think he does make some mistakes in some of that logic. So part of it is to do with the definitions, as you said, I don't mind those definitions as far as they go, but the problem is, is that, that because the label of racist and racism has got such a strong valence. It's it's up there with child molesting, frankly, in terms of the kinds of emotions that arise from it. To, to use such a bland description of racism and then rely on that is confusing to the public discourse and probably contributes to the really quite nonsensical culture wars stuff that goes on. Um, so that would have been best avoided. I guess my other criticism is that he implicitly does work in a categorical kind of way. So, you know, in classifying behaviours or policies as racist or anti-racist, it, it just flattens the differing degrees. And as we talked about, there are some policies that are going to be virtually neutral in terms of how to the degree to which they contribute towards or fight against racial equality. And that's okay. And that goes along with my other issue, which is that it, you know, he's kind of like a single issue person. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of people who are single issues. You can talk to environmentalists, for instance, who are absolutely focused on environmental issues. All they care about is fixing the environment, something that I'm personally very passionate about and very sympathetic to. But, you know, that is a unidimensional focus. And there are other things apart from the environment that are important. And just like there are other things apart from racial equality that are important. It doesn't mean that those things aren't important. It just means that there are other things that are important too. So when you talk about categorizing things as racist or anti-racist, implicit in that is the idea that anti-racist policies are always good and racist policies are always bad. 
Whereas just like with environmental issues or um, income inequality or health and well-being, you know, it's, it's multidimensional. We're trying to optimize things for people in a, in a multidimensional way. So there are, um, we can have other focuses as well. So those aside, you know, I, I, I don't mind where he's coming from at all. I quite like it. Even though his definition of racism as being about policies and being about behaviors can be confusing to the discourse. It's actually on a purely academic level, very helpful, I think, because that's, that's the stuff that actually matters. You don't really care about what's going on in, in the heart of hearts of some, of, of some random person. It's if they say and do stuff that is, that is hurtful or just annoying in the case of that, that old guy and his stupid joke. <laughs> um, that's, that's the problem. And, and, and in terms of policies, yes, it, actually it doesn't really matter what the intention is. What, what matters is how much it works. It doesn't matter if your policy intends to reduce um, carbon emissions. What matters is whether or not it does. So, so I'm actually okay with an awful lot, well, more than okay. I, I like a lot of his logic. And although he does have that laser-like focus on reducing uh, racial inequality, which is very understandable, when you tease apart where he's coming from theoretically, he's he's really not focused on race. He's focused on those um, environmental and social and, and even cultural and historical determinants of people's health and well-being, their, their economic well-being as well, and saying that, hey... I don't really care how downstream it is, the degree to which it came about through um, some some policy that from 100 years ago or whether it came about through some policy of 10 years ago. He's saying we should operate from the heuristic that large discrepancies between racial groups is not really okay. It's not really excusable. Um, and the sort of right-wing arguments or explanations for it, which is, oh, it's these people deserve to be worse off because there's something wrong with them, either biologically or culturally or whatever, is simply wrong. First of all, it's nothing. To, there's no evidence, as he says, that it could have anything to do with biology, so that knocks that one off. The, the other one, that it's cultural, to the extent that that exists, is often largely downstream of historical policy. So I don't think of myself as being in favour of for want of a better phrase, identity politics or or being woke at all. I, I just look at these things from a, a liberal and slightly socialist kind of frame. And just from that frame, um, he's not wrong. He's not wrong at all. So, you know, little picture. I have lots of quibbles with his, or not, a, a few quibbles with his um, logical decisions. I think he could fix a few of those things. I think he's not guru like guru like at all he explains himself very well and very clearly which which makes it a lot easier to identify those points of disagreement thank you very much Ibrahim x kendi that was helpful and on a big picture level i think i'm on board i like you chris i didn't expect to be on board i expected to hear like twitter culture war slogans bullshit bullshit frankly <laughs> yes. but i didn't you know he he makes a lot of sense um and when you disagree with him at least it's it's quite clear at what points you disagree with him on, and you can talk about that. Yeah, I find myself, you did, I don't think you listened to the, all of that episode, but I find myself like much more in agreement with Ezra Klein than Candy when they had their discussion. But that's because I'm a neoliberal centrist shell. So that's why. But I think we've, we've said enough on the man. 
And now people can leave us alone for doing candy. We've done them. And uh, it, was, it was entertaining, I think, but it's substantial. It was entertaining and it was easy because he is very clear and he makes sense. So it's, he's easy to understand. And whether you're agreeing with him or disagreeing with him, it's he's good in that respect. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's all the more shocking because he's black. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry. I'm like, cut that. That's a joke, right? I know that's a joke. It's a good joke. It's a very good joke. Is it a good joke? You should end on that. You should end on that. And then it just, that's, that's it. Nothing else. <laughs> yeah. That, that, I don't have the balls for that. But I might keep it in. I might keep it in. But we, we have some last things to do, Matt, before I let you escape to the outback and your luxury gay communism. Mm-hmm. Um, Can't wait to gay it up out here in the outback. Yeah. I hope people get all these references. I'm just just like making myself <laughs> so terrible. But so before that, though, we have a little uh, a little thing that we usually do before we end. So one thing is reviews. Reviews, Matt. And I'm not going to keep you long because these are short reviews, but I quite enjoyed these two. You know, we ask people to send in reviews. They send in reviews. They're often funny. And I've got two amusing ones. Can't wait. So one says, my review, that's the title, by Flax Hardly. (laughs) Um, A cruel and confusing experiment in gaslighting in which two woke gurus from academia claim they are not woke, then proceed to criticize anti-woke gurus on woke grounds in order to provoke accusations of wokeness. Five wokes. <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, well, I think our favor, our generally favorable impression of Kendi is not going to help us uh, in terms of the um, on the woke on the woke Well, you're screwed. I'm screwed. But I don't know. I, you know, it's it's all very confusing as to who sees me as woke and anti woke. Yeah. When I was blocked by Liam, it was easy. Right, like I was blocked by Liam, blocked by Stefan Molyneux and Mike yeah. Cernovich. I'm the perfect centrist, a kind of knowing progressives and far right people. But now I'm back yes. in the Liam sphere, at least until this episode airs. So you know where where do I go from here, Matt? But mm. review mm. number two, um, a review from a Zoomer. What's a Zoomer? But he uses Zoom. No, 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 no. Okay. They're a generation. It's a generational it's- thing. Yeah. The people in the... Are they? Um, There's Generation Z. This is a review from Generation Z. That's it. Generation Z, yes. You know, like Generation Z, they like to be concise and... It's just a short thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this is delivered by Professor Numena, and they say, fair and balanced for two bourgeois neolibs. So, <laughs> so there we go. We we have the wokey woke and the the second category that we belong to, bourgeois neoliberals. Yes. Well, as we as we discussed earlier, that's that's a label I have to accept. I am bourgeois. My my daddy has a yacht, so there's there's no way to avoid um being called bourgeois when that when that's the my case. daddy does not have a yacht. But actually we do have boats. Oh, well. We do have boats. But these are like oh, yeah. these are Irish boats. <laughs> They're not, not your luxury <laughs> yachts. These are like does, from does blood, it, sweat, okay. and tears and like shampoo bottles. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, I mean let, okay, so let me just check. Does does your boat have air conditioning? Why no? What country <laughs> okay. like Ireland does 
<laughs> has the air conditioner ever been used in Ireland? Um, well, yeah, they, at least, you know, we do have summers sometimes, did have. But, um, yeah, that's such a, that reveals your privilege, Matt, your heat. <laughs> i'm leaning that. i'm leaning into the privilege you're leaning into the racism i'm leaning into the privilege no that's but, not uh, a fair freedom of things oh look yeah matt we forgot to throw out no we did we threw out loads of disclaimers at the start but we wanted to say of course we could be wrong we only partially know things and blah 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 blah. like this works right and we say by the way we were very fair yeah um we should also do that because you know these magic spells of just saying like, yeah, it's quite impressive how good we were at dealing with all the arguments fairly and without strawmanning anything. It's impressive. Yeah, I was I was impressed by how open-minded you were, and I could tell that you were of me as well. I was. I was. It's good that you could tell yeah. that. Now, now that that's out of the way, you got that done. We've, we've picked up the techniques masterfully from the gurus, I have to say. And mm. look, you're getting a little rare treat at the end. You know, usually we're pretty quick. We're tired. We're like, bye-bye. And it's still going to be quick because Matt is tired and I am tired. I'm very tired. But we need to say thank you to our patrons who, not now because we're too tired, but they will soon receive the Garometer scores where we take candy and score them in a little short video, which we, little short video, uh, that we post up on the Patreon. So should you wish to see that kind of thing, uh, hear the Garometer breakdown, join the Patreon. And you can be like Matt Carl, <laughs> who is a conspiracy hypothesizer. Yeah. Thank you, Matt Carl. Thank you, Matt Carl. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. And next, we need to find Kim Hendig, who is a revolutionary genius. Kim, well done, Kim. Maybe you can spit out that hydrogenated thinking and let yourself feed off of your own thinking. What you really are is an unbelievable thinker and researcher, a thinker that the world doesn't know. Yes, I think the world doesn't know. I'm very sorry for that, but they will. They will. Just give it time. Mm. And <laughs> Evan, Evan. My man, Evan, is <laughs> just the first name. Um, so, Evan. Oh, that Evan. Yeah, that Evan, Evan. You know yes. Evan. He's always, he's, he's always hypothesizing conspiracies. That's his problem, Matt. But, you know. Mm. Apart from that, he's a good bloke. Yeah, he's he's all right. He's all right. Good job, Evan. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. Now, in a derivative fashion, Matt, the last one for this week, M. Jason, unlike the other conspiracy hypothesizers, he follows in the wake. We've already had that sign played two times and like, here it is again. I'm sorry, M. Jason, but yeah, you're the last conspiracy hypothesizer. Uh, but he's still unique and special. That's the important he thing. He is. He's a minority of one. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. All right. So there we have it. Our, our lovely patrons, thank you very much. And you can be like them too by joining. But the last thing, the very last thing, Matt, the thing that you get before we go is we usually say who the next guru is. Now, we didn't decide this at all, although we have 
now I got a document with loads of suggestions and we have a bunch of emails. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel our reward for a job well done will be that we can just decide mm-hmm. here yes. who will do it. Now, I'm going to make a suggestion based on your recent Freudian slips. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling you want to cover Gad Sad. Is that an inaccurate feeling or is that true? Oh, yeah, no, that is true. I would like to cover Gadsad. I mean, in my brain, he occupies precisely the same cognitive location as Nassim Taleb. Is, is he different or is he just like a different version of Taleb? What's what's the deal with him, Chris? That's a good question, isn't it, Matt? So we could we could find that out or we could go, you know, left field and go for someone. I can give you some names or Matthew... Remsky, when he was on, suggested someone that's on YouTube. I forget her name now, April something or other, but he was talking about these like super high production values and come hiller eyes and that, you know, the whole thing is wrapped up in this like super presentation. So we could mm. go for a bit of a left field health and wellness guru. I feel like we need to do some sort of lefty or at least hippy-dippy people that we really hate because feeling like we're losing our centrist credentials by not minding Kendi. Oh, you want the lefty that we hear. And you don't class all of the people that claim to be lefties in the no, IDW. No, I don't here. class them. Oh what what well, I mean, if not lefty, at least, what about that new age thing? How about oh, Gwyneth Paltrow? Has she said anything that we could... What is that? Like, but people hate her. Isn't this supposed to be? Oh, no, we are, we are supposed to hate her. Right. Yeah. So that would never work out. <laughs> I feel like I will. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I would. I'm like, you've been, you've been chatting about Gwyneth Paltrow all the time recently. It's Gwyneth Paltrow this. Did you see what Gwyneth Paltrow did? So like, <laughs> maybe, maybe let's just get Gwyneth Paltrow done with. To, to stop you talking about her. She won't reply to any of my emails or phone calls. It's, it's, it's really annoying. I have no idea what kind of content she produces that will be able to do this, but she's a guru. She's online. She's a woman. Let's do it. She's a lefty. Let's do it, Matt. Let's just names. fucking do it. Let's fucking do it. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, but we will do Gad Said. Maybe we'll do Gad Said next. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, God, Gad Said. And also the other person that Matthew Redsky mentioned. They all sound good. They all sound good, Chris. But. Well, but still, we need to get rid of this Gwyneth Paltrow fascination. I have to deal with it, Matt. Before <laughs> your marriage is sick, you know. So, so there we, <laughs> you have it. You've heard it first here. Gwyneth Paltrow is the next person to be tore down by our relentless cynicism. Yes. We will find out all her inconsistencies. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, Matt, I almost forgot because I had to add this in last time. We have a Gmail account, which is decodingthegurus at gmail.com. We have a Twitter account, which is gurus.pod on Twitter. And you are on Twitter at Arthur C. Dent, and I'm on Twitter at C underscore Kavna. If you send us reviews and stuff like that, that's all appreciated or abuse, whatever you want to do. Um, and oh yeah, that's just a thing. So the last thing I wanted to say, Matt, is just, you know, grovel at the feet of your muscle master. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that sounds good. That's my new sign off. That's my new sign off. Um, yeah, that's that's, that's disquieting, but uh, I like it. Yeah. Well, there we go. All right. There we go. 
no explanation for it. Just gonna no, leave the no, hanging out. There. No, go listen to the Mafia Ramsky interview should you wish to understand the context. Um, <laughs> Very there good. we go. Podcasts always have inside joke, Matt. This is normal. Mm, good. Okay. As long as we're being normal. Well, yeah, hope that. it out for me then. All right. Bye bye, you big racist, you. <laughs> <laughs> bye.